bad boys always know mythology. Yes. They, <laughs> they do. always know Greek mythology. That's true. Yeah. Well, that's that should be a sign. If you're out there single and you're not sure it's a good guy, if he knows his Greek <laughs> mythology, give him a shot. He's got a, he's got a chance. <laughs> back to Word of the Witnesses, our 12 Monkeys rewatch podcast. Just a reminder, this is a rewatch podcast, which means we have seen every episode and we hope that you have too. If you have not, you need to turn this podcast off right now. Not because we don't want you to listen, but because we want you to finish this show, watch the greatest series finale of all time, come back and then hang out with us. We will spoil early and often. You have been warned. This is Beep. <laughs> so ominous. <laughs> Anyone's left. <laughs> that is not a spoiler. This is just Beep. <laughs> um, you can find me on the old Twitterverse at, uh, at Beepsplain. Um, sometimes I'm active, sometimes I'm not. It is what it is. I, I'm working very diligently on an original work right now and have not been on Twitter very much. Yay. I am joined, as always, by the lovely Cece. Hey, guys. Um, you can find me at, at um, A Capital Chick on Twitter. Um, and then we also have the podcast Twitter account where we update scheduling and upcoming guests um, at 12M Rewatch Pod. And then we have a special guest back that hasn't been with us since season one. Selena is here. Yay. Thank you so much for having me back. I'm very excited. We are delighted, even with time zone madness. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's a show about time after all. <laughs> um, it's so good to have you back. I can't believe you haven't been on since season one. I know. Well, I'm just glad you asked me back because if, if, if that was just like a one and done, then <laughs> I would have wondered what I said. <laughs> if all you got to do for the entire series was yeah. Yeah. like defend, defend Ramsey. Ramsey. It just <laughs> <laughs> you don't need to do that anymore. Nobody wants to hear that. <laughs> He's you dead for now. Lost listeners on that. That's no. true. <laughs> um, so Selena, remind everyone, um, where they can find you and read all of your beautiful words. You're one of my favorite reviewers Aww, out there. You. Well, um, I am on Twitter. I am Selena at Hypable, which is S-E-L-I-N-A at Hypable, which is ironic because I'm not really at Hypable. <laughs> but what I do um, on, I guess, the social internet is kind of only really related to fandom and stuff like that. So I figured it makes sense to just be at Hypable and then that is how people will find me. And I, I only really cover the 100 uh, on the CW anymore, which I know is everybody on this podcast's favorite show. So, <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's why we're doing a listens. podcast about 12 monkeys. Yeah. <laughs> we watch it. Um, no, we no. It. Um, but yeah, so so that is pretty much what I do online. And um, I, try, I, I talk about other things, although at the moment I don't watch anything. Like, just get that out of the way right now like I rewatched 12 Monkeys and I watched Brooklyn Nine-Nine to fall asleep and that's it mm. I'm currently watching things that are done right now and that I have had people tell me that I trust ended that's well nice. because I'm just tired of it that's nice I, do, I did actually watch American Gods no not American Gods um what's the other one Good Omens recently it was very okay. good yes it was good yeah 
Um, yeah, I've been we've I've been watching Black Sales, which has Ooh, been oh yes, ex- I saw your tweets. I want to watch. Love that too. Black Sales. Excellent, excellent. <laughs> Probably my favorite um, TV writing since mm. Twelve Monkeys. So yeah. Um, all right. So this is really fun, Selena, because I was following you. You watched this. Obviously, you came on the pod, and I think you did your own rewatch. But then you watched with your family. Right? I did. Yes. That Tell was us about that. Oh my yeah. gosh. So yeah, so my family, we like to bond over television shows. So we always find things to watch together. We've watched Buffy together. We've watched Lost. We've watched Battles like Galactica. We've watched The 100. And then we, we watched, um, 12 Monkeys. And my fa- my mother and my brother, they loved it. Like obviously everyone who watches this loves it, but they were upset. Like, you know, like the way you get into it where you like, crawl on top of the sofa and like (laughs) watch more and more and more and more and um besides from like one that I still I don't think that I ever can quite forgive my mother for which was that she fell asleep in the middle of lullaby (laughs) like this was the how appropriate though (laughs) but the thing is that like when you when you watch 12 monkeys for the first time I think lullaby if you're not already hooked that's when it gets you, you know, like that's when, for me at least, when the show moved from, oh, this is cool. Oh, I think more is going on. Like then quote unquote, just the time travel show. They're actually being really smart about the time travel. And when they did Lullaby, because it was the episode where something changed, it was, it was a game changer. And so I was so excited for them to get to that. And then she was, I, I looked over and she was like, <laughs> and that was terrible but then after that it was all good and my mother's favorite is jones and my brother's favorite is ramsey he's an even bigger ramsey stand than i am and it was very traumatic for him to watch those final couple of, of seasons and of course they both love deacon like that's that's kind of like obviously like he appeals to i think both of them so yeah that was also very traumatic <laughs> oh man that was really kind of rough it. go yeah, yeah they really loved it so and did you have any um, – it is fun. It's fun to watch with, like, next to people that don't know what's coming, but then yeah. also manage your own emotions as you're picking yeah. up on, like, the double meaning to so many things. Exactly. Did you, did you have any um, rewatch thoughts about the series in general or just maybe also season three because we haven't talked mm. to you in a while? Yeah. No, I don't know. Just about the series in general, I think it's it's one of those rare shows that is even better when you watch it again you know like the yeah. better you know the show the mm-hmm. the more it's worth watching and i think that's just absolutely incredible like so few works of media care about giving you that kind of of payoff and 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 tying things in like that so i think that was just incredibly enjoyable i think that there were there were characters maybe like um hannah or like Agent Gale, <laughs> mm-hmm. or or even Olivia, that the first time around, I was a little bit like, I want to watch Jones and Ramsey. Um, but this time, like every because you know everybody matters, mm-hmm. um, then you also care about each little like minuscule development for each one of them. And I think that that is not that not that they don't matter if they don't have a purpose, but you know what I mean. Like it's all it's all connected. And I think I really really enjoyed that the second time around. Um, and I think also as well, this kind of pertains to what what you asked uh, before we started recording about, you know, whether Cassie pressed the button or not, which is something that I, when I watched it the first time, I think, you know, I'm one of the people that kind of advocates for the fact that she might have. But I think what I'm sort of 
I wanted to clarify. <laughs> I've listened to all your episodes. And Aww, every yay. time and every time someone is on and is like, how could anyone say that Cassie could have ever pressed a button? I just I really <laughs> I've been like screaming in silence. So um, I think my, my point, my argument is, it's, I don't think, I think she's, I, I'm sorry, I'm using all the wrong terminology. Um, I think she did stop the countdown. I think my whole point is that I think that there was a really real possibility that she wouldn't have. And I mm -hmm. think that's what's important. And that's what kind of, when you, when I watch the show again, and you see it in this episode mm -hmm. in particular, is that the idea of living in a perfect moment is something that appeals to her because of what she's gained, because of what she's lost, because she has idealized the perfect moments of being in that, in, in that cabin, in that house with Cole and being pregnant, about to be the three of us, all of that. That is her moment. And Which is expressed here. Exactly. Yeah. It starts in this episode. It exactly. starts like hugely being developed. Right. right. And I think, you know, obviously she almost didn't stop the countdown. That's canon, you know? It, she Absolutely. was going to not stop the countdown. And ultimately, I think she chose, obviously she did choose to stop the countdown. The question would, wouldn't be if she chose it or not. The question would be, was she a millisecond too late? You know, I think that's for me, that's the question. That's mm. the mystery of the end isn't, did she choose or not? But did her choice come because we see it count down the last few seconds? Was it just those two seconds, like second too late. So that's like, that's my sort of take on the, on the end mm -hmm. that I don't think it was a, a question of is she in the red forest or not? What did she make the moral choice or not? Just that, did she wait? Did she hesitate too long? You know? Um, but I do love, I do see that so clearly on this rewatch in particular, how much that perfect moment is something that is being almost engineered by the story to appeal to Cassie. Um, Yeah, um, it's temptation. It's the ultimate temptation for her. And she's been given all the reasons and all the incentives for being tempted by the Red Forest. And she's so much like uh, this man. Um, not in any... <laughs> what is his name? The, uh, Shaw. Shaw, yeah. Like, in so many ways, like, it is his his plight is her plight, you know? Yeah. There's so many... Like, there's so, so much connection between them. And I think that that comes out much clearly to me this time around. Yeah, I have to say that I, cause, because Selena, I definitely um, am beep. Like, I, I usually find myself in the position of playing the devil's advocate on, mm -hmm. on the Red Forest, even if it's not what I ultimately think. But mm. it is, in this episode in particular, um, 306 Nature, you really see um, if the opening argument of the Red Forest was through the witness in season two with Aaron Marker. This is Shaw. Um, he's the salesman, right? right. Like yeah, he's, uh -huh. he's the missionary. And every time he talks about it, whether it's in this episode or in season four and after, I am like right there with Cassie. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like he, almost convinces me like he's really good at what he does and Christopher Lloyd is so oh gosh, yeah. brilliant and and compassionate but also creepy and no eyebrows and like there's this whole <laughs> right it's like this really fascinating performance where you see his grief you see him moved by the grief of others mm -hmm. and yet he's luring people 
all but one of those people in the tent is going to die, right? Yeah. Like, it's really so um, – but I'm excited because, like you were saying, this is one of those episodes that maybe on first watch seemed like a lot of setup – and then when you go back and rewatch it, there's so many layers to it with Gail's mm. Mm. arc, with Jennifer's arc, with Cassie, that it's a really, really fun rewatch. So, yeah. Yeah. So today we're talking about 306 Nature. It was written by Ian Sobel and Matt Morgan. They also wrote Immortal in season two. And it's directed by Kat Candler. Um, and we always say, yay, it's a female director because it's only like, what, 30 something percent of TV, <laughs> um, even in the last year. So she made her debut at Sundance and she's worked a lot on the show Queen Sugar. And this episode to me always struck me as like visually really beautiful to look at yeah mm-hmm. um just the cinematography and a lot of the like camera angles like coming up on those 1950s cars um i always just thought it was a beautiful episode like just visually um i thought maybe we could just talk a little bit about some of the big picture themes before we jump in we're going to go to 2046 first and then 1953 um obviously this episode is called nature um the next one is called nurture And it's something that is a theme that the show obviously is playing with, with Ethan, this nature versus nurture debate. But also, as we've talked on the pod in the past, that affects a lot of different characters, whether it's Deacon, whether it's Jennifer, whether it's Cole. Um, And I love thinking about how this nature versus nurture, like how much of us is our genes is a product of how we were raised and our experiences, which are the first part being the nature, the latter being the nurture, that are factors that we can't control, and how much of our like life's journey is the product of sort of free will. And it, it, I feel like it's all – this episode is as much about free will versus fate as it is about nature versus nurture. Um, did you guys have any kind of big picture thoughts about the nature aspect of it. I think it's interesting the way we're introduced to Ethan in this episode. Um, we see him with this cult. We're not really in that little boy's head except for the one part where he's drawing as a primary. And so we're almost in Cole's point of view of, of watching this horror, um, like these horrible acts that he's introduced to. Whereas in the next episode, Nurture, we're going to watch how he's raised. And I think I'm thinking that probably was intentional um, so that it could get us sort of into Cole's mind space of why he'd be willing to do what he did. Mm. As he already said in 305, you know, like, if this is who he is, he got it from me. I mean, he's like hardcore on nature's side and Mm -hmm. has already expressed that. Mm -hmm. But what is so, so interesting about this episode, like, other than the fact that it is outrageously terrifying, you know, it is terrifying what they're doing. Mm -hmm. But it's also, it's, it's, it's necessary and almost like an overt <laughs> signaling of this is like if if Hitler's parents went back in time. You know, this is what it is. This is what they've said this quite openly, I think, as well. That this is if 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 they had they have to believe that he is that bad because they have to be put in that position, that moral position where they have a chance to stop all this and they have to see it. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a gas cannon, you know, like it's, Mm -hmm. it's, it's, that's what we're seeing and we have to see the horror unfold. And and it's just, um, I find it incredibly, uh, incredibly thought provoking. And I find it also just a really great way for us to connect to Cassie and Cole. Like, how do you, how do you put 
viewers in a position where parents have to debate whether to kill their child, you know, and where they can come out of that debate on opposite sides, but still love each other, you know, because that's ultimately, I think they do such a good job of that, of showing Cassie at the end saying, I, I, I know it has to be done. I can't do it. Cole says, mm. I can do it. Obviously, we don't know what would have happened if he had been able to go through with it. But I think the fact that they still can be in this together after that is it's well done story-wise, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. Yeah. I That's think true. that the concepts, though, of nature and nurture, like people always want to put them, you know, pit them against each other. But I think that they're just inextricable. Oh, yeah. You, you yeah. cannot yeah. separate them. Mm-mm. And and that's what a lot of people want to do. That's what obviously Cole has done in his mind. That makes it easier. You know, I mean, no question. Like, this is just who he is. We can't stop anything. We might as well get rid of him. Like, that is that makes it super cut and dry. Um, it's simple. I know that, you know, in the in the nurture sense, you want to carry, though, like a lot of blame if you were the one to raise them, but they're not. So they have no idea like what he's been going through. Mm-hmm. And that puts in like a, a completely different wrinkle that for sure Cole is not considering. But we already know that Cassie sees him as a purpose, whereas Cole sees him as, uh, I'm sorry, Cap- Cassie sees him as a person, whereas Cole sees him as a mission. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny because this actually, this episode provoked the biggest debate between my husband and I <laughs> about this show. Um, and it totally fell down the same lines as Cassie and Cole, um, mm-hmm. where I got to the end of this episode and I was like, how could he – totally emotional, right? How could he say he could kill his son, mm-hmm. right? And my husband being like, it's not real to him. Right. Mm -hmm. Like all he saw was this little boy, you know, putting on a gas mask and killing people. He didn't have that baby. He did it right. Like carry like it's not right. And and he my husband was onto something, right? Because obviously the big moment is gonna come in the next episode for Cole where he sees him as a child. Um but I mean there's a lot of really interesting, you know, the casting choice that it's the same actor yeah. who plays him <laughs> as Cole, a right? Bit on the nose. <laughs> but I get it. They, that's how they get that personal connection to him. You know, he has yeah. to look like him. But yeah. <laughs> right. But I mean, the fact that Cole is in a place that we saw like in the last episode of such self-loathing, I think also feeds into, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, mm. his, the difference. It's a little um, him and he can undo it the way he was willing to undo himself in many right. ways. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Um, the other, uh, particularly with the word of the witness and the, and, and Deacon trying to figure out where he fits in and Gail. I mean, we, ha- we basically have two drawings of two dying men in this episode, whether it's you know Ethan what? or, yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. I just got so excited. I was yeah. just going to say, that was actually a thing on rewatch that w- <laughs> when I first watched this and Ethan gave Asian Gail the drawing, I thought he was just like, 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 ha ha, you're gonna die. <laughs> you're gonna die, dude. Sucks for it. you. <laughs> I was like, what a mean kid. He's killed all those people, and now he's like mocking the guy who's gonna die. <laughs> so, anyway. <laughs> well, I mean, so uh, this whole idea of, and Cassie and Cole are debating it in one way and and Jennifer and Deacon are grappling it with another way and you've got the word of the witness or these drawings as both 
symbols of fate, right? Like there's a plan, there's predictions of what's going to happen, and then you have and and then you have characters debating what can we change, what should we change in this loop, right? And all of it, you know, obviously it's all within the mythology of the show. But if you kind of step back, they are in a very high concept way debating something that people do all the time, right? Like, how much of things are my free choice? What was meant to be? I mean, you know, it was fate. That's things that people throw around all the time when we're just talking about life. Um, But there are loops in this episode where people do change things, right? Like, so... What do you think? <laughs> you don't? I mean, we, we probably should really quickly, um, because we've talked about it on the pod before, the whole Agent Gale part of it, how much of a loop and how much mm-hmm. is actually changed. What gave you pause, Selena? No, I um, I don't – I want to – please remind me what uh, Terry Mattel is, the person who actually knows the answer to this <laughs> before I say anything. <laughs> Okay, so, and beat, jump into, my understanding is that there is this Agent Gale, Cassie Cole, frankly, Shaw and Mantis are a part of it as well, loop, right? And there were, there was a loop, there was a version of events where in season two, we saw exit wounds when Gale yes. was shot. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. And then in season four, we don't, and that's because he's wearing the vest. Right. Yeah. Now, in the 1940s episode, Gale slips up. He definitely has been with Cassie and Cole before. He knows more than he's saying. The 60s episode. I went back, actually, before we before we recorded to listen back to what Terry Metalla said. Cassie and Cole did change. He said they did change something in this episode. Um, so I guess my understanding right now is that Gale always saw Cassie and Cole in 1953, mm-hmm. but perhaps there was a version of these events where Cassie didn't tell him about 1961. Well, I would hope – I'm that makes me so happy because that's one of the things that has – if I have any issue, and this is not 12 Monkey specific, but with time travel stories in general, it's this idea that characters keep wanting to change things, but you keep learning – that nothing can change. Like, you know, like, like you go back in time, you're like, right, I'm going to go back and I'm going to stop this thing from happening. But by doing it, you're making the thing happen. And I feel like in 12 Monkeys, they do kind of walk a fine line. In certain episodes, I go, I sit there thinking, but you do know that the reason this happens is because you go back and try and change it. Like, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like, it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of a loop for the audience. So it makes me so happy that if this was an actual instance of them being able to change things because it makes the whole... There's so many times I just want to scream at them. Like, if you know that going back made this happen and you want to go back to do something different, why don't you just not go back? You know what I mean? Like, that <laughs> yeah. kind of ma- it, it, it validates the time travel of it all a little bit more. So, so yeah. I'm glad if that's the case. Well, I think it's also interesting because, you know, it's an episode where Cassie and Cole are outright debating Mm-mm. whether whether they can change anything, whether they should, right? Yeah. And the result of what Cassie does, even though they won't know it <laughs> until 
after, right, until season four when Gail comes to save them in the 60s, is they did change something. Yeah, they did save someone. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and Jennifer and Deacon are having this debate about what do her visions mean? And she's seeing these signs. And that's because Jennifer is going to affirmatively choose to, like, literally save Ethan, right? Mm-hmm. Like, Cassie and Cole are having this existential conversation, almost as if, can they so- can they save Ethan's soul, right? Can they save who he is? Jennifer is having these visions about actually saving him. And then you've got this whole, quote unquote, missing piece. And that's Deacon, mm-hmm. who is going to come back because of Jennifer and save everybody at the end. And so it's really interesting. I found it really interesting rewatching it and, and watching these characters debating what is, what's purpose? What's a loop? What can we change? What should we change? And so much in this episode is setting up really important changes that the characters actually make. Um, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. But so yeah, that's my understanding now is that. When we saw Agent Gale talking to Cole, um, yeah, I'm so sorry, I misspoke. In that 1960 episode, at the beginning of the episode with Cole, mm-hmm. he, he always had an interaction with them in 1953. Yes, correct. They're there possibly was – there was a version of this episode that took place in 1953 where Cassie didn't say anything mm-hmm. and Gail died in Berlin. Yes. And this this version of it that we watch in this episode is when Cassie tells him and that makes a change, which is why we see him survive in season four in that flashback. Yay. Is that, so I, well, is that right? That one of, yeah, and I think that one of the things that Terry pointed out, which is, you know, a bigger issue than just, like, this specific scene and why he was saying, like, in some versions they went to Titan and in some versions and they didn't. And we talked about, you know, the conversation that Jennifer had, old Jennifer and Jennifer with herself. Like, did she ever really make those different choices? And his point was that, you know, that kind of does put a, put an overarching, like, how you want to read it sense to a lot of these scenes is that, the demon already exists, right? Time, or I mean, Cole has already been inserted into the timeline and time is being driven mad by him. And so there are certain parts, certain functions that may or may not be like as important as others and absolutely have to happen versus not have to happen that like are constantly in flux because time is just like, ah, <laughs> right. right. And right. so there are certain things that, you know, that absolutely have to happen. I think, I think there are things that they, there's no way they could change, but then a lot of this stuff is kind of, a, you know, up for debate. Like there could be different versions of it. Right. Yeah. I'm yeah, trying. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> or not. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It, it makes, it all makes more sense than Avengers Endgame. So I'm willing to go with that. <laughs> Shots fired. Uh, no, I mean, I love the time travel stuff in that, but it is definitely Did much you? more. I, I, I do. No, I think it made sense. I like that it's a choose your own. I like it mm-hmm. better now than I did when I first walked out of the theater, but I kind of like that it's a choose your own adventure. But mm-hmm. anyway, okay. So um, the other, um, and, and Selena, you talked a little bit about this with Cassie. Um, this whole theme of time as a thief, mm. which we will we will find out in the episode Thief, that kernel of – it came from Cassie talking to Ethan. Um, yep. And this, you know, this episode 
has so many clues about sort of Ethan's journey. Like we see the apparition of Eliza. We see her pot. We see her father's watch. We see her tomb. Um, and we really get that argument for, you know, we got a little bit of it when um, Aaron Marker, when the witness is wearing Aaron Marker's face. But for me personally, this is the first time when I really started to get it of why, why do these quote unquote bad guys want to bring this about. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, int- don't you think they invalidate their point a little bit, though, when they, like, resort to mass murder, like, five seconds later? But no, but mass murder to them, it doesn't matter because this is all temporary. When they bring about the Red Forest, all those people that died in that tent are going to reach their paradise. So just what? like Jones, just like Jones mm. is willing to, you know, kill everybody at Spearhead – to reset and and achieve that greater good. I think you can make an argument that as chilling and horrific as that scene in the tent is for Shaw and Mantis, that's just a temporary state of being. Well, but I then ask, what was the purpose? I was going to yeah, well, I was going to ask why do we know why they killed all those people? No. I so don't they, think so. I mean, the theatrics was it to train Ethan to be a bad guy? Was it I mean, don't you need to contain the conspiracy? All sure, those people but then just why saw invite them there. Because they don't know who he'll choose, right? Mm, okay. Mm, I guess. Like, they know on the word of the witness, this is what my understanding of it was. They know on the word of the witness that they need to be in Hope Valley in 1953. But they don't know until Ethan draws the portrait who amongst the people in the tent is the follower that they need to pluck. And okay. so once they choose her, then they have to get rid of everybody else because otherwise everyone's going to go around talking about how people were appearing and disappearing. So you have to contain it. I, th- I guess that was my take. Mm-hmm. Is, is that what you guys understood? Okay, like the time I'll, travel I'll, I'll, aspect yeah. of it all. Yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, did you guys have any other sort of big picture thoughts before we jump to 2046? On it still Kelsey? kind of puts a dent on the sales pitch, just saying. <laughs> 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 yeah. Um, I think I do I do have like just one more thing on Cassie just because yeah. I think I, I've thought so much about her um rewatching the show and listening to you guys uh on your podcast. And I think that that's the thing that I, d- I don't think the show was engineered to make this point, but I do think it works incredibly well. In Cassie's case, you know, we've talked before when I was on the show, I think we talked about it too, that that Cassie, you know, she spends so much of the show being so miserable. You know, she just has loss after loss after loss. And, you know, when she goes into saying time's a thief, like we feel that because we feel all of her pain. We feel all the people that have been taken away from her. We feel all the sacrifices she's made. But I think in a way, you know, it's not just the the death in Cassie's life that sucks. It's also the life, you mm-hmm. know, like she is, there's such an absence for Cassie of genuine moments of of human connection you yeah. know even of living she she's not living exactly mm-hmm. like she we get cole and ramsey they have their little jokes you know jennifer has her, her jennifer and deacon as i'm sure we'll get into um, <laughs> deacon and uh and cole you know jones and cole jones and hannah there's all of these the family forms around all these individuals and it's not that cassie's not a part of it but, you know, I can't remember her having like a, a yeah, well, she did have that road trip episode with, with Jennifer, but you know, mm-hmm. like a genuine moment of this is just 
nice. You know, this is just a joyful moment that I'm sharing with someone who isn't cool. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that works so well because that idea of one perfect moment, you know, if, if she'd had more moments that were, that were good, you know, that maybe not perfect, but that were great, then I think it would kind of weaken the strength of, of, of conviction that she could spend her entire existence in just that one moment, you know, Whew, without that's actually anyone. That's a really else. good point. <laughs> yeah. Because that's it. Jones isn't there. Uh, Jennifer isn't there. Deacon isn't there. Her mother isn't there. You know, it's not, it's, it's a, it's, it's the strength of that. And I think retroactively, you can say that the absence of anyone else, you know, and I, and I don't think they made Cassie miserable and alone for that purpose. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I do think it strengthens, uh, her, the power of, of her character to to feel the way she feels and, and for the audience to understand where that comes from. Yeah. And, you know, this episode, it never occurred to me until I rewatched it. Maybe this is obvious to other folks, but the whole setup of this episode, having it be in the 1950s, having it be Christmas time is like mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. ultimate rubbing salt in the wound yes. for Cassie. <laughs> it's like right now you yes. are back in the same decade with Christmas trees and holiday music um, and 1950s fashion with Cole. And yet now you are, she is like haunted by the devastating loss of her son and who her son is. And it's just like the juxtaposition of being in the same decade and the same time around the holidays. Like the holidays can be tough for anyone, (laughs) right? Like let alone like all of it is just an in-your-face reminder of what she's lost. And that never really hit me until I went back um, and rewatched it. It's a Christmas episode about about loss and grief and death. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. And she's alone in that to yeah. a large extent. Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, Cole is there, but they're not, they do not feel this the same way, at least not right now. No. Yeah. Which is why I will get to it, but, you know, they, like as Selena said, it is the show makes clear that even though they have this, they're at a crossroads with respect to their son, which is something that is very relatable. Um, obviously not in, you know, whether or not your son's going to bring about the end of the world, but like that's someone a- called child services. <laughs> <Yeah. Tuesday. laughs> but, 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 and it's clear that they still love one another, but, but she also is going to speak to her loss in a way that is not directly to his face. You know what I mean? So when she's in that scene at the cemetery, that is when she's really opening up about her grief. And I think it's significant. She knows he's listening. Yeah. But that is not something that she was able to say to his face up until that oh, point. That that moment of them, of him listening, even though I have like, it feels so embarrassing <laughs> because Agent's Gale is there. You know, I almost mm-hmm. have like, um, I feel bad for like listening in on that. But God, that was, that was such a powerful moment. It's one of my favorite scenes in the show. Like the cinematography, but also all the added layers of what's going on. All right. If you guys don't have anything else, should we go to 2046? Let's do it. All right. So we open up. Initiate splinter sequence, kiddos. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We've never done that. That was fun. All right. (laughs) That's a nice transition. Yeah. Love it. (laughs) 
All right, so we open up and we've got um, another loop in the show. We've got Jones and Adler and they're working on Project Karen. Um, And Jones is almost like, I feel like she was someone like trying to remodel a house. She's like, is this wall load-bearing? Can we just cut a hole in it? (laughs) um, But what I I love about it is, first of all, uh, we know that Deacon, it's kind of surprising, he knows his Greek mythology. He knows Karen is the the ferryman over the river sticks and we talked a little bit um in the last pod about sort of the symbolism in that with aaron um selena did you have any thoughts about sort of the the greek mythology of of the ferryman that takes you to another world um and splintering the entire facility no (laughs) (laughs) No, i i don't know If only Deacon were here, he might be able to flesh I, yeah. that out. Yeah. But what I have I, this thought. I have this yeah. thought. Bad yeah. boys always know mythology. Yes. <laughs> they true. always know Greek mythology. It's true. Bellamy Blake on the Hundred knows his Greek mythology. He does. That's true. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's that should be a sign if you're out there single and you're not sure it's a good guy if he knows his Greek <laughs> mythology. Give him a shot. He's got he's got a chance. <laughs> um what I love about this when you're rewatching it and Jones like clearly doesn't want Adler to spill the beans on what they're up to and Deacon definitely has his antennas up and he's like, come on, like tell me. It kind of hurts rewatching it because Deacon's the one that's going to get left behind. Mm. Yeah. You know, Um, so he's the one he's being left out in the dark and you're like, oh, man, when they actually pull off Project Karen, you're the one that's going to get left with Olivia. Like, yeah, like when he's standing there looking, looking at the wall, like that shot is like eerily present, I think, of of when he's going to be standing on the other side. Yes. He's like a kicked puppy. It's just <laughs> terrible. Oh, I know this is a tough, emotionally tough one to watch, but, but it feels better now that we know that he's the secret weapon, right? Mm, like, mm. um, so we have Jennifer going back to rescue her pet. Um, <laughs> and Lasky, um, uh, Lasky going along with it, even though she kind of lied to him as to I why she that. needed to do it. Um, I, and think, I think it is. Sorry? No, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think it is like a little bit of a, um, like, how are we going to get exposition in about how uh, paradoxes work moment when she puts him too close? Because like, why would she do that? She knows. She's smarter than that, but okay, I'll let it slide. Her par- you mean her paradox is in a half shell? Yeah, yes. <laughs> okay, here's an aside that you can totally delete if you want. Okay. Did, did Jennifer know about paradoxes? She did, because she explained it to the, to the turtle. So she must have known, because she was like, she put it like them close to each other, and then it was like a spark, and she was like, oh, can't do that, because you know that means a paradox is going to happen. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah that's right. <laughs> you go boom. I was thinking about all the ones in season one, though, and like how she wasn't mm. present for them, so just, mm. okay, okay. Yeah, I don't but, think she's ever seen, no, I don't think she's ever seen one. Yeah. yeah okay. Um, I so, think this is the only instance where somebody, I mean, besides Ethan, goes back in time for just like, no reason. Again, fun reason. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. Well, Cassie goes back for her mom, but yeah, it's like, mm. w- would you leave your pet? Who's going to take care of her tortoise? Aww. Absolutely, you know? I would not leave my pet. Yeah, I maybe wouldn't have put the two tortoises so close to one another, but I don't know. It reminds you that Jennifer can be a little bit, you know, like if any character was going to play with that, it would be her. <laughs> we would put them close together. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I All mean, right. you've got a time machine for fuck's sake. Yeah. <laughs> 
All right. So she sees that first image of, you know, I don't know, a vision of Eliza. And we will see Eliza in that mask. I didn't realize that was Eliza. (laughs) It was another thing that I was just like, oh, that's why. Because I was like, is it Olivia? Me too. giving it away? Like, I didn't get it. She was like the woman. And then I remember thinking it was, it was, um what is her name, Madeline Stowe, that character? Mm. I was like, but that doesn't make sense. Why is she that? <laughs> yeah, I think because we see it's a little bit of a different mask. Yeah. It's got that pointier kind of nose that we saw as one of the artifacts um, at the beginning of season three in like the Museum of the Witness. <laughs> That's it, Titan. Yeah. Um, and then we later in the episode see that the that vision has their throat cut um, which is one of the ways – isn't that how Eliza is killed when the gang catches up with her the first time? Yeah, yeah. Oh, Lord. I mean, 607 times. Who can right. say? <laughs> well, yeah. I've, I feel I, – I, I really, like, have a visceral thing with throats. So, I, ugh. Yeah. So, I remember that. <laughs> um, so, I mean, there's just a lot – I mean, obviously, this is all building up to the end of the episode with the visions with Eliza's tomb, but – We've got a lot of Eliza clues, right? Like Cassie taking out that pocket watch and seeing the inscription, um, which is the watch she gave Ethan. And there's a lot. Um, but obviously, like, there's kind of, I mean, there, it kind of reminds me of the Meltdown episode in um, season two. It's got a li- this episode has a little bit of like a horror element to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, with like dark corridors with Jennifer, um, or even like the victims of the mine coming down mm-hmm. the street um, that sometimes the show plays with. If we can go to that first Jennifer and Deacon scene, when Deacon is pouring over the word of the witness and he can't find his name anywhere. Mm. It hurts yeah. my heart. I, I think I'll, I want to hear why it hurts your heart. I think it was a little bit like putting his arc against Cassie's in this episode was a little bit jarring for me because like, yeah, he's not on it, but like <laughs> first world problem. You know what I mean? Like. <laughs> considered Deacon and as well you know when he's talking to Jennifer and he kind of tries to he is trying to help her but it is also a way of saying you know you think you've got problems but I am feeling left out so you know it it is a little bit of like comparing problems and um I feel like this happens on Twitter a lot. You know, someone complains about something and someone comes up in the comments and they're like, oh, you know, but I, this happened to me. So you like, can't complain about your thing. So <laughs> maybe it's like a little bit harsh, but it, but it is, um, I don't know. I, I, I do feel for him a lot. I think it is a very tough position to be, you know, in a, in a, in a, in a group of people that are all chosen and have a purpose and you're being told, you know what, like you're not special. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't even think it's of, just that. I think like so much of Deacon's arc, and I think I think this is canonical. Like I don't think I'm stretching. Mm-hmm. Is that he wants to be part of a family, right? And mm-hmm. I think that's such a tangible way of saying like, they keep hey, you're just kind of on out. the side here. Yeah. Sorry, bro. Yeah, and that really for sure thing. is valid. I I just I find it like in the context of this episode, it was I don't feel like I could give it the attention it deserved, but that I'm sure sense. you can. Right. Yeah. <laughs> what I think is interesting about it is is the way. The way different characters view the word of the witness is like an inkblot test for that character. So Mm -hmm. some some characters look at the word of the witness and feel bound and like constrained by it, right? Like like Cole, like that's fate. 
like it's written down. We know we know what Ethan's going to do, right? Like we right. can't change that. Deacon's looking at the word of the witness and is feels a sense of of at, like he's at sea, like he doesn't have a purpose because what he's going to do hasn't been preordained. Right. And the way that you can flip it around is he actually has the most like it's all perception, but the most freedom in terms of free will. Yep. Um, and so it's interesting that like Deacon wants that purpose and he looks at not being on the word of the witness as a negative thing. And then on the flip side, you've got characters like Cole that feel like there's no hope for their son because it's already written down everything that's going to happen. Yeah. I mean, Deacon's the wild card. Mm-hmm. You don't. Mm-hmm. And, and when you look at the, you know, they have, so they have the word of the witness. And if you consider that like the plan, if all you do is go by the enemy's plan, that's not how you win. Like you have to have a sneak attack. You know what I mean? Like there has to be another portion of it or else all we're literally doing from mission to mission is following like the plan that they laid out. What's the, you know, if you can't change any of that and that's what they believe in it, then that just, it's kind of like Selena said before, then that just gives us the next place we need to go to like screw up the thing that we went there to stop anyway. Mm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think it's also, I'm struck by their scenes, the Jennifer and Deacon scenes of how perfectly this episode sets up the rest of their season three and season four arc, mm-hmm. you know, that, that it, that we need Jennifer to be able to see the puzzle from above, that we need Deacon to be the secret weapon that Olivia doesn't know about. Um, and this quote unquote missing piece, it's going to be Jennifer at the end who figures out, you know, the old Jennifer who's going to figure out, I need to bring Deacon to Titan. Right. Um, yeah. And so it's just so I loved on first watch, I loved getting to spend some time with Jennifer and Deacon because I really loved their sort of emerging friendship and how they're confidants and they both in different ways feel like they don't fit in um, and are trying to figure out what their purpose is. And so they end up being bound to one another in that way um, and believing in one another. But it also like when now that you know how the whole story ends, I just kind of sit back and like, wow, they're just really setting it up all so well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I do get what you mean, Selena, too, about it just kind of feeling like whiny with the stakes that are going on with everything <laughs> yeah. else. But at the same time, I do feel like he's genuinely encouraging her. Yeah. You know what I mean? When he yeah. says, yeah. like, mine's yeah. not, like, that's yeah. kind of whiny. But he's like, dude, you're tied into all of this. Like, mm-hmm, he's mm-hmm. he's not letting her stay in that place. He and he's pushing her to, you know, go to the apparition, do whatever, like, find yeah. your purpose and all this because nobody can define it for you. Like, one of the only things that's on there about you is your death. You know what yeah. I mean? So I think make it up until you get there. It is kind of like a double thing because on one hand, there is a little, that's the thing. It is a little bit of like a, you know, the, the, the outsider looking at the popular kid and going, why are you crying? You know, you're popular, you know, doesn't, it's like a lack of understanding, but it's also a, for Deacon, it's such a given that Jennifer is special, you know, Mm -hmm. that Jennifer is the key, that Jennifer has, you know, this, this, like, you know, in so many ways, she is the one who is most, special of all of them absolutely um, and and has the, the the closest tie to all of it and has the potential to actually find the answers that everyone else is running around trying to you know scramble to find and so i think for him it's also it is a little bit of not understanding where her pain is coming from but also 
acknowledging how much he he doesn't he doesn't think it's a question you know he's confused why she is you know not not appreciating what he considers something really great and that's also right. because he appreciates her mm-hmm. right yeah i mean it, it it's a little bit crushing you know they both have these horrible fathers in common mm. and so when jennifer is like every time i go down one of these rabbit holes of visions i end up being locked up mm-hmm. um yeah and it is cr- oh it's crushing when deacon says to her no one's going to lock you up and you're yes. like oh because he's <laughs> gonna have to and the way but- he says it too it's like he's so no you know like it's such a such a certainty no of course not and the the, the implication too is if anyone tries i'm not gonna let them mm-hmm. which it just it's the pain. <laughs> no one's so going much. to lock you up, but I will. <laughs> uh, but he will. He will let her go. Yes, and yes. and that is why she will be able to save Ethan. Yeah. So I mean, right? So like, you have this. Jennifer and Deacon have their own little. I don't know if it's loop or like their own like kind of cycle of choices that they make that help one another and ultimately help everyone. Um, but that is a, it just like hurts my heart when he says no one's going to lock you yes, up. I'm like, oh, Deacon. And they <laughs> literally, he literally should have said no one else is going to lock you up. <laughs> so I'd be like, no the- one else, but the people in this room <laughs> who are not turtles are going to lock you yeah. Don't sweat it, kiddo. You're fine. <laughs> <laughs> so that takes us to Jennifer takes Deacon's advice and he tells her next time the ghost tries to talk to you why don't you talk back um, she goes to the machine um, oh, wait, can I please just tell what can I say because I think it's super cool that Deacon like didn't even remotely question her for a moment oh yes yeah. he's yeah. like oh that thing's real you got that going on yeah here's how we handle it you know what I mean he's not like are you sure or like are you just not sleeping? Do you have some stress in your life? Like, yeah, he was just like, "Gotcha, apparitions. Let's let's deal with this. I trust right. you." Yeah, because she's so legit to him. You know, yeah. like she really is. She's the chosen one, quote unquote, in his sort of understanding of events. I think. Yeah, because what Jennifer always tells the truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I think you know he. Uh, that is another sort of layer to the scene that's beautiful is that he believes her and mm-hmm. he's encouraging her you know basically like this is your superpower <laughs> so lean into yeah. it you know yeah. um but then if you think about it too he actually is encouraging her to do what he did in titan because he was having i mean i know it was himself and not like a you know a literal hallucination or whatever but it was only in um confronting his father that he was able to find that like to get himself out of that prison not the you know literal prison but like the mind prison right Mm, yeah so he's like hey i know a little bit about this stuff (laughs) right he knows about talking to ghosts that's a good point um all right so that takes us to jennifer takes his advice goes to the machine um there's a lot of really fun i mean jennifer has a lot of great like whether it was before I, I see dead people or yeah. time, long time listener, first time caller. <laughs> that was my favorite quote. I love that. That's great. Um, but the machine reacts to her. Yes. Uh, or does it? I, I well, don't they're know. linked to the same thing. They're both I linked mean, to time. It's a vision. Yeah. I mean, what do you guys think? Do you think, I mean, because she's not looking at the machine, we are, when the beam contracts. Do you know what I'm talking about? 
Mm. But isn't that, isn't that, I mean, obviously it is all connected, like Beep says, so it's kind of, I guess, a little bit arbitrary, but um, it's, it, it's her vision, right? Like when the light changes, it's part of her dream. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's part of her primariness. I think that yeah. this has just been like the most tangible way that they've shown it. Um, mm. As far as like, there's someone in there kind of guiding her, which is different than we've seen before. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, um, and also we're experiencing, you know, a bit of the horror that she's going through, but maybe because it parallels Cassie so much, like we see it in a different way because like the witness was actually, you know, like in Cassie's head versus now, like this is just what Jennifer experiences. Yeah. I mean, we've seen Lillian Markridge, even though they didn't explicitly say that it was Markridge um, in the season two finale, kind of communicate to Cole as a guide in that way. Um, But I mean, I think this episode is interesting because, you know, we have heard a lot about primaries. We have particularly through Jennifer, but a, a little bit through, was was it Tommy in season two? Am I remembering mm-hmm. his name correctly? You know, mm-hmm. that he knows of Jennifer, right? But this is the first episode where we're really inside two different primaries heads. Right. Seeing those images with Jennifer and Ethan, and even the, and even later in the episode, the, the, ep- the way that it's edited, suggesting that they are hearing the same things at right. the same time and seeing the same Im- images at the same time. To truly see the link between primaries and how they're connected to time, not only to time, but to each other. Yeah, it's a really interesting episode mythology-wise in, in understanding how this, to the extent that we can, how, how it works for primaries in mm-hmm. terms of their images. Um, mm-hmm. So... The vision, if we could break down the vision that she sees, because I had never fully appreciated how many clues were built in to these images. <laughs> it's yep. crazy. Um, so we hear there, there's a lot of kind of, um, voiceovers being edited in. The one I can make out is obviously the Olivia one um, mm-hmm. and talking about Jennifer's purpose. Did you guys pick up on, and I think we have some snippets of things Jennifer has said in the past. Those are the only ones I could make out. Um, did you guys make out any other voices just before we go I, to the vision? Themselves? I have one that's like super painful. Oh no. Uh-huh. For like, not, not, not painful in an emotional way, but painful in like, I can't believe they told us. What? They actually have Olivia from season four saying, I am time. Yes. I, that's what the one I was going to say as well. I cannot believe it. Like, no. <laughs> yep. I, le- I heard that too. That was the very last one, I think, or one of the last ones. Yeah. And it was just like, I was like, did it, did that, did it? All you can do is stutter through it because it's like, are you freaking serious? Oh my God. I totally, and later on, I totally threw my remote. When later on Deacon goes, oh, the family's all here. Joan's yes. hand on us. Yes. Like, are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> it makes me mad. <laughs> it's so good. Oh, that's a good one, Beep. Um, okay, so the so the images that we see, we have Olivia talking, and you have Jennifer saying there's something about the eyes as we look at the mm. corpse that yeah. now we know is Olivia. It has a snake, it has a serpent. Um, oh, I hate snakes. Uh, <laughs> on the top of it. Later on in the episode, we're going to have Ethan draw, both Ethan and Jennifer drawing the serpent chasing its tail. We have Eliza wearing the mask she uses um, with her throat cut, which is from Thief. We have Ethan dying on the ground. 
in Eliza's tomb, which is from the season three finale. We also see Olivia walking up the steps as the witness, also from the season three finale. And then just to top it all off, (laughs) the freaking code to delete Cole (laughs) is on the wall of the tomb. And Jennifer wakes up from her vision, having drawn it on the floor. It is all- We've already got it. All there! Ah! It's ridiculous. I don't think that, and I know there was probably, there was more story they could have told, you know, there was more, um, I mean, this, the show could have gone on, could have gone on, but, um, knowing though that they had seasons three and four, like, I can't imagine there's anything they could ever be more thankful for. Mm-hmm. Like, they carried over things from one and two throughout, but like the way that three and four fit together is just like, it's incredible. It really, yeah. really is. And for them to be able to write them both at the same time and to know, you know, this is where, like, they knew they had to wrap, but they had so long to do it is just, I mean, you have half the show basically to start working, mm-hmm. really working towards your end game. Like, it's just, I'm thankful for it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure that Terry and, you know, the, the crew are as well. Mm. Yeah, there's like, there's no filler, but there also isn't that sense of just, wanting to rush to the finish right you know which i think is is equally just what makes this so masterful so you're not sitting there watching this episode now going like yeah but it's just setting up stuff like you were saying like it's not a setup episode right it's right. a genuine important episode on its own right yes i mean and it's giving us a lot of mythology and plot clues mm. but it's setting up so much in the way of character arcs like yeah. so much yeah. um, that always happens through Jennifer. <laughs> it always everything that happens to Jennifer is so much a part of the story, and you just—it's from the way she talks at the beginning, from the visions she sees, from whatever. Like you just don't know how to listen to her. Well, yeah, I mean that's the thing that is almost meta about it is mm-hmm. that we have all these clues. We as the audience do. It's all right. there. It's that right. we can't like. Jennifer see the puzzle from above and then once we do when you go back and watch it you're like oh yeah. my god it was all there right well, like like now like we're Jennifer you know we're like oh now we have the whole story and we get it like on this podcast we're Jennifer <laughs> <laughs> right now we are right um we're old Jennifer she's um, on a rewatch <laughs> <laughs> <She's> got- <laughs> right all right so you have not only has Jennifer been drawing the code which you know obviously my mind goes to um season four with the yellow chalk and drawing it everywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, It's also filled with drawings, like everywhere. Um, And we saw the room at the beginning of the episode with the tortoises. So you have uh, a stark contrast of just how productive um, this kind of fugue state she's been in with these visions has been. Um, You know, going back to what you all were saying about Deacon before, of course, I think Deacon was encouraging her uh, sincerely, but it also is clear that he is unbelievably disappointed that on yeah. top of the word of the witness, he is not <laughs> present in a single freaking Aww. drawing hanging in her yeah. room. You know, and he's right by her like every day, you know, every yeah. day in, day out. And he's still like, oh, I'm not important to you either. <laughs> right, right. I know. And then, you know, you have the one that I was talking about specifically that made me throw my remote. Uh, the whole family's here. Cole, Jones, Rayleigh, yes. Hannah. And you're like, oh, yes, man. yes, yes. 
Um, I think we would be remiss if we didn't mention that his casual, uh, this is the the Meg, this is the Tumblr theory that Jennifer and Deacon were much closer to one another <laughs> with how familiarly he walks into the room, which we know isn't canon, but fans have fun with but it like, anyway. It's yeah, a- <laughs> and why not? You know, like it's one of those things I saw for, um, what was it, Good Omens? I keep wanting to call it American Gods, but of course they're like, two of a piece um where there was a, a graphic of of Asiraphale and um Crowley the two the two angels that everyone is shipping mm-hmm. and there was like a, a thing over it that said you know yes you could call this place platonic but why would you <laughs> like, you know what I like that <laughs> I feel like that's a good sort of you know why would you when you could ship it you know right it could be something something else so i i say the same applies here did you ship it selena i i did mm-hmm. for sure i mean i don't again i don't really think i mean it doesn't define the relationship or not i think it's a really beautiful relationship but but why not you know like <laughs> could could not hurting it. anything and they had so much downtime like i am i'm on record as saying there's way too little kissing in the show i feel like there could have been at least 15% more <laughs> and i don't see why some of it could not have come from from Jennifer and, and Deacon like who would it have hurt i know. You know they were both like the second choices that became the number they 1 really, choices yes exactly there was there was there's a lot to love about this pairing, and I think reading it as as romantic, there's a lot of merit to that. Like there is a lot of merit to saying, well, you know, they were just like they just loved each other on on this other level that they have, and that I think particularly Jennifer has. But I think if they were to have sort of like quote unquote found love in a hopeless place, you know, <laughs> were kind of left behind, at, at, while everyone else were running around doing splinter things, you know, I think that would have made a lot of sense. Yeah. I mean, the way he says, the way Deacon says he loves her is by giving her yeah. the detonator to blow up Hitler. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Who gives that up? Like, better than a ring. Like, that was the declaration. Who gives up that, like, that opportunity? Yes. He yes. handed it to her like it was nothing. It's not even like she asked for it. Yeah. Yeah. And they're both kind of left unresolved in terms of, like, Deacon is in love with Cassie and Jennifer is probably not in love with Cole by the end of it, but she never really fell out of love or infatuation or whatever whatever you want to say. So mm-hmm. it would have been nice to see some kind of... Because we know they both want love and romance. It's not like that's the thing that they don't want. So I think it could have been nice to see them at least attempt to find that with someone else who they connected to in a way that was genuine. In a way, I don't think, you know, they weren't... They didn't. They weren't equals with Cassie and Cole. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, Cassie and Cole were very much like of a piece and, and equals in the way they thought and stuff like that. And I think that Jennifer and Deacon were in a similar way as as Cassie and, and Cole, probably like the perfect person for each other. And it's kind of a shame they never really discovered that. <laughs> I know. I, sh- I made myself sad. I know. I'm not saying it's like 100% legit, but to be honest, I also I always saw Jennifer as as pretty asexual, to be honest. Yeah, and and I I don't think she understood what it meant to love mm-hmm. Cole. I don't think she was like super in love with him romantically. I think mm-hmm. she just like thought that was something she should want. I I, I mean, totally and reading into that theoretically that. No, i just I mean, don't and, see no, that from her and, yeah and yeah. as a primary she's drawn to him right yeah. like i mean mm-hmm. there, there's a lot to unpack there and he's she's also such a child too, yeah. she's such yeah. a child in her own right like i just don't 
see her that way. Yeah, you know? and it's one of those things where I, I agree with that, and I thought about that a lot as well, and I really do like the way... It's not to say it's a criticism of their story that it wasn't romantic. I just would have... I don't think it would have been wrong if it was, but I think... No, not at all. Leaving it the way they did and also sort of acknowledging that maybe for Jennifer, like, romance wasn't a thing that was at any point beyond Cole, something that she really considered is also nice because we so rarely see that. I just think because she did have that thing with Cole that ended up being just her feeling a little bit like a jilted lover, that's kind of... But in the in the context of what you're saying, it makes sense. She's a prime. She's a primary. He's yeah. 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 I mean, look, I I shipped it. I was hoping season well, four. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they have chemistry. There's so much empathy. I it will we'll always have fanfic. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Deacon walking very yeah. casually into her room is a great fic prompt, and I've read some good ones. <laughs> so, <laughs> if you guys don't have anything else about Deacon and Jennifer. That takes us to Deacon going to see Olivia. Um, this is a lot in a little bit. Uh-huh. <laughs> it is, this a, is great- a very short conversation, but I'm like, ooh, okay, we're just firing on all cylinders here. It's a great setup. Um, tell me your thoughts. Oh, man. I, I think one of the interesting, like the most interesting things that I got out of this, and that could just be my perspective, everyone throw in if you didn't think so, was, like, the amount that Olivia has, like, completely thrown her eggs in the basket of nurture. (laughs) Yeah. And not nature. Because she's, like, you know, I was told I had this purpose. I was, like, everything was ordained or preordained, whatever. Everything was this and everything's that. And she's, like, screw that nonsense. (laughs) We are what we were made to be. And I don't think she meant, like, you know, birth-wise, like, Deacon was raised in a certain way. He became exactly who, you know, he was made to be in that regard. So did she. Mm -hmm. And she was basically saying, like, in my mind, I have acknowledged that. And now I'm going to choose something different. Yeah. I I don't have to be this. I love the, the, and, you know, until they had put them together in this scene, I don't think it would have been readily apparent to me. I love how they mine the parallels between these two characters, mm-hmm. you know? Yep. Um, both feeling frustration with, wait a minute, I thought I had a bigger purpose here. Both yep. feeling frustration at your, they're not in charge, right? Um, mm-hmm. And both- She's not on the word either. I'm sorry? She's not on the word either, right? I don't think so. I mean, not that yeah. I've, no, not that we've ever seen. Um, mm-hmm. But both of them- both of them are, neither of them know it at this moment, and <laughs> Olivia doesn't either, that they are going to make independent choices, kind of like ultimate examples of Olivia's is a little complicated, right? Because it's her in the future, but they both will choose who they're going to be, right? Like mm-hmm. Deacon was made to be by an abusive father. There were certain things that happened to him, right? Like the trauma and hardening of him and his outlook on the world. But he is going to choose human connection and sacrificing himself for others. Yep. Um, Olivia was was raised to have this purpose to serve this, you know, prophet, to serve this religion. And she's ultimately going to, at the end of this season, pull off a coup. Um, yeah. And then, but then ultimately find out she was the one in charge all of all, all along. So yeah, it goes to that nurture, but they're both characters that ultimately make their own choices about who they're going to be for better or worse. Well, that has to be nurture though. If it's nature, you don't have a choice. 
That's just who you are. I, I you mean, know what I mean? When so, people say nature or nurture, I view both of those as it's interesting. Like, and and well, we're, like and we're before yeah. they're inextricable. But if you're solely nur- or nature, but both in of, my mind, yeah. if you if you only believe in nature, yeah, then where is free will? But nu- mm-hmm. but nurture is also everything around you that happened to you. Like, how did your parents raise you? What kind of community were you raised with? Right, and and so and those things are often, particularly for children, out of their control as well. Right, which is what I what I mean by that is, and I just go back to the point that they're inextric- inextricable from each other. You yeah. have to have like both to some degree. If you go to those extremes on either side, you just end up with like a faded life. Yeah, I got. I guess. Yeah. I mean, you have the qualities you're born with, you have the experiences that shape you, and then you have your choices that you make as an individual. And mm-hmm. how much either of those are are influenced or predetermined by the by the two that we just described. Yeah, I think yeah. that's yeah. There's your trifecta though. Like yeah. it has to be some sort of balance of, of all three of them. Yeah. But I mean this you know, obviously we're gonna end the season with Olivia telling Deacon he was meant for more than this. And I mean, I've we've talked before on the pod. Did you guys, Selena? Did you believe when Deacon sided with Olivia that he had actually defected? Yeah, I think I did. But on that level of like, oh, it's so annoying that they went for that. You know, kind of wishing <laughs> that the show was better. <laughs> and then of course it was. <laughs> That's so fair, though. Yeah, it's so yeah, fair. yeah. I think they they did get me because I I wasn't sure. Like I think when you have a character like Deacon, the the great thing about them is that they can because they he is so so damaged and because we know he has a past that the past that he has imagining that he got so upset about being left behind that he turned to the dark side it's something that i could believe a a lesser show would do absolutely that was made 10 years ago or something like that Mm -hmm. but but it it obviously for the person like it would undermine everything that he's become yeah, that had happened. Right. I mean, it still happens today all the time on different shows. But yes, uh, but I'm yeah. with you. Like, it was something where you're just like, oh, seriously? Like, this is super cliche. Right. Like, but at the a, same time, it was mm-hmm. believable. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Beginning so, with this episode, right? Yeah. yeah. I'm mm-hmm. not on The Witness. I'm not in Jennifer's Visions. I'm not a red shirt. Right. Mm-hmm. And you have Project Karen being discussed and he's the one who's going to be left behind. And so when yeah. he ultimately is, they got me to the place where I was like, ah, oh, damn it. <laughs> you know, like, so it's perfectly set up, except that's not what they're doing. <laughs> I don't I don't remember if I truly believed it or not. I, I really don't, because those episodes came so quickly together in season four. Like, I don't know that I really thought about all, mm-hmm. all that much, um, but I I could believe it for sure. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I but was. The, I will say the one thing in this scene that like pierced a part of my soul hmm. was one word that Olivia used that like hit on the like the crux of every anxiety that I have about myself, which was she said that some you know there were a lot of moving parts, some were interchangeable. Mm. yeah and i was like oh that word oh my Mm. gosh like that's one of the biggest fears i have in my entire life that like someone else could fill my role that nothing i do is important enough you know that it it won't really matter and like anybody else could just you know be me in the friend group or in like at work or wherever it is that like 
me as a person that like, I don't matter. And that word just made me want to cry. Yeah. yeah. Well, and you know, it's interesting because in the la- stepping back, kind of the larger loops that are going on, right? Like, what are the things that can be changed on the margin? For mm-hmm. example, saving Gail or not saving Gail? Um, and what are the things that you like Cole being like, no, but we can't because then the red forest will come along. So there, there right. are things on these loops that are interchangeable. You, you change right. this thing here, you change that thing there. It's not going to change the big thing. Um, like the big events in this story. Um, but, uh, you know, what is, it's painful to watch for Deacon and the way that the acting in the episode, you just, you know, when she asks him, we, we are what we were made to be, ask yourself. And, and, you know, my mind goes back to Deacon and that jail cell thinking about his father, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that he's a bad man or a good man, right? Like, um, but ultimately what is, <laughs> better on rewatch as we know Deacon has a larger like one of the most important purposes of all um right. and what's and it's one he makes you know yeah and that's yeah. about choosing other people you know yeah. that's what's so hopeful about it um, well I think the truth in that regard is he could have been interchangeable right were it not yeah. for the choices that he made and then he yes. becomes so integral that it's like well, that's pretty much what did it. So, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. I mean, think about his. I mean, they're setting this up right now. Think about his and Olivia's showdown right before he dies. Like, just the time that he buys them. Just like, I mean, we knew it was not going to happen. Okay, sure. But like, she was going to kill Cole right there. And he's like, no, 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 no. I think maybe like you just take me instead. Mm-hmm. Right. Do you guys have anything else about Deacon or should we go to 1953? Let's go. I was promised a lot of thoughts on Jennifer and Deacon. <laughs> <laughs> Do you not think that you have you not been fed, Selena? Have you not? I, I, suppo- I suppose. For now, I'm sure we'll come back. Just I'm- like brunch was all you got, and you were expecting yes. like, a- <laughs> like Thanksgiving An aperitif. Yeah, I mean, I can flail because I love them, and I love them so much in this episode. <coughs> so yes. much. Uh, I just think seeing them in scenes like this where they're, like you said before, it is downtime and they're just like alone and they're, you know, they're talking about big things, sure, and it all fits in because like you said, there's no, like, there's no fat to trim off of these episodes that are left. Like, it's all important, um, you know, in some way or another, but seeing them like this and then knowing how they end up in the coda is just so beautiful to me because this is like the budding of them becoming each other's, like, person. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. And it it makes... the narrative makes time for that Mm -hmm. you know like nothing is actually we could have we could have gotten to jennifer and her visions another way you know what i mean so Mm -hmm. there's nothing that was inherently necessary to further the plot in letting them have these conversations but what it does do is it gets us really emotionally invested in that relationship which is what makes it so painful when she's locked up right mm-hmm. or or that he's left behind or everything that's going to come it's making the time to invest in their connection now yeah i think a lesser show would have just largely left him out of it mm-hmm. and yeah. focused on something else like they mm-hmm. would have gotten like you said they would have gotten jennifer to the visions on her own he could have just straight up confronted Olivia about the word. He didn't have to talk to Jennifer about that. They didn't have to have those conversations. And yet they did. Yeah. In my mind, they had to. (laughs) But some people would think that was like, you know, girly stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Um, All right. So then that takes us to 1953. Um, 
Agent Gale is back. Yay. Please. Yay. I love him so much. <laughs> He's like my favorite recurring character, I think, of like any show. Um, I I love how this opens up. Considering how dark the rest of this episode is, um, between horror and kind of the terror of the tent at the end, it's just straight up humor. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Um, I love how no matter what era Agent Gale is in, he has zero patience for his incompetent FBI colleague. <laughs> um, but, I, you know, despite the humor of walking in on S&M in room 608, um, I love that it is a really elegant shorthand for we got a hint of it in, in the Berlin episode, but how much this has screwed with Agent Gale's life. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. like he doesn't have the respect of his colleagues. You know, the first thing his colleagues is, is this this monkey bullshit again? Um, and the irony, of course, is um, we are going to find out that there is a definite um, nationwide conspiracy <laughs> recruiting people to the army of the 12 monkeys going on. And Gail is right. It's just there's no way that he could have like tracked it down. But he's just, you know, when you watch him... And it's all so close, right? It's not room 607, it's 608. <laughs> and, you know, Cassie and Cole are going to show up and the light, he's right as to why the lights are flickering. The bartender's wrong, right? And it's all right there. And you just kind of feel, I don't know, I feel like righteous for him, but also it's a little depressing. Like, this has destroyed this man's career. We know already it's destroyed his home life. Like He's season one Cassie. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's true. But everything got stripped away from her and she had to like walk away from her career and all that stuff, you know, because she's like mm-hmm. going mm-hmm. after this conspiracy and everyone's like, oh, honey, you're yeah. mm, just stop. There's something so incredibly tragic in the sort of the encounter storyline, you know, where you 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 have these stories of, of, of characters getting swept up in these epic adventures and, you know, they discover the special world and stuff, but it is kind of... It is so sad whenever shows or stories kind of explore that. What about the person who just gets it once? Right. You they know, just kind like, of bump up against it, but they're not right. really part like, of it. Exactly. Like the, the Wendy from Peter Pan or like mm. the um, the girl who waited Doctor Who. Like obviously he does come back, but like Amy, you know, like he meets her once and then he goes away for like 20 years. And, and just those kinds of stories are so sad to me. And this definitely had a little bit, even though it was funny. <laughs> yeah. Had a little bit of that, because what if they'd never come back, you know? Right, right. I mean, and then, I mean, the thing is, is despite all that, mm-hmm. you know, there's certain moments in this episode where you're like, well, if that's something that sums up Agent Gale, and there's there were two moments in this episode. The f- one is at this opening scene where Cassie and Cole do appear in the lobby. And the first thing they say to him is, we need your help. And Agent <laughs> Gale's just like, okay. Right? Like, yes. ready to go, right? It's like, Adventure. Yeah, like every 10 years, these assholes mm. show up in the lobby of the hotel and wreck his life. And he's yeah, just this, always ready to sign up for more, you know? It's very much a um, put me in coach. Like, <laughs> yes. sitting on the bench for 10 years and then... Yes, yeah. Yeah, you know, or at the end of the episode when he finds out he's going to die and... I think many people could have very different reactions to that. It tells you the kind mm-hmm. of man he is when he asks, does it make a difference? Yeah. Um, it's also a little bit like echoing uh, Deacon's story of like, but I just, I want to matter, mm-hmm. you know, to this huge thing that kind of makes normal life seem so pointless. Here's this one 
thing where I can actually make a difference. Right. Exactly. Um, well, but he's also seen these fools like flying by the seat of their pants. So he's like, if I'm actually going <laughs> to die, did I just go with you guys for like no reason? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you were Agent Gale, you might not have the best impression of Cassie and Cliff, of Team Splinter's like mission execution. Um, exactly. Because, you know, like even through like season four, it's like, yeah, Cole's poisoned and he's going to die. <laughs> and like, you know, he'd be dead if it weren't for Gale. So, um, yeah, I just, you know, and I think a lot of it, I mean, I think the dialogue for Gale is so he has such a like very particular character voice um mm-hmm. and it's not it's not just the time period um and i think i think in the past beep didn't they say Shantretta like wrote agent gale's dialogue specifically but he just has these turns of phrase like like in this episode like when it's time for my dirt nap i don't mm. think i've ever heard that expression in my life and really? i don't know have you yeah that feels so like g-man to me <laughs> my dirt nap. I was going to say it feels very Buffy to me. Really? It feels yeah. like mob. Well, you have David Grossman um, producing the show as well. So maybe there was a Buffy. But like, yeah. Oh, I'd never heard that expression. Um, I think I think it is a, a mob thing, actually. Yeah, I think it is sort of, yeah. Got it. I'm going to give him a dirt nap. <laughs> yeah. He's either going to get a dirt nap or swim with the fishes. Those are Exactly. The- <laughs> yes. No, I just want to hear Selena like do an episode of Sopranos. <laughs> All right. So just to orient ourselves in character point of view, because whenever Agent Gale is interacting with the other characters. So for Agent Gale, it has been nine years since he saw Cassie and Cole in the 1940s. Um, And for Cassie and Cole, it's probably been about two years between – their time in 1957-58 and Cassie's time in Titan. Obviously, there's even been a different passage of time for the two of them. Yeah. But they've seen Agent Gale die 10 years from where they are in East Berlin. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we already kind of knocked out that the kind of like confusing, we've seen a different version of this um, 1961 episode than what they're talking about. Um, but obviously like what is hanging the like heavy elephant, like the elephant in the room for Cassie and Cole is they know he's, they know that everything that they're asking Gail to do, um, that he's going to die for this cause. And it's kind of, it's an added layer of like how heartbreaking it is that Gail is just always ready to like jump in and help. And we know what it's ultimately going to cost him. Especially Um, when it happened on an ill-fated mission that like the team was split up over. Right. Which I think is a really interesting, um, Cassie and Cole's, like, tell me what you guys think about their moral dilemma. And, And I think, and sort of where their different character experiences up to this point, they're, they seem to me like they would have been on opposite sides of this question if it had been at the beginning of season two. Yeah, they flopped again. For for much of the show, one of them is mission and one of them is um, saving people. Right. And they have flopped again. Yeah. Because and- Cole is like, we have to kill our son. Okay. Let's just do that. And Cassie's like, I am having a massive existential crisis. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly like that. <laughs> yeah, no, I, that was in a cut deleted scene. <laughs> um, but, you know, also Cassie feels guilt over Gail's death 
that sure. Cole doesn't, right? Because mm-hmm. she was she and Ramsey were the ones that went rogue, and that's why they had to go to Berlin in the first place. Yep. Um, and yeah. she also has a whole other level of like things to be triggered by. You know, you mentioned earlier with the, all the Christmas stuff. Like, yes, he lost her, but she lost like her family. And like Selena said, like the only life that she's ever truly built for herself. Right. And she has yeah. this connection to Ethan that he doesn't. And, you know, and she's seeing all these things and it's just like, it, it's constantly bringing it up for her. Right. And she, for so long, Cassie didn't let herself feel, you know, and now like, I feel like since she had Ethan, she just can't hold it in anymore. Yeah, this is an episode and I, I mean, I don't want to ascribe it, you know, but we're all women here talking. I find sometimes when you have, um, you know, it's a, it's a female director for this episode. And I feel like this, for me, I really feel like I'm in Cassie's headspace in this episode. Um, and there's all these little, yeah. t- there's all these little touches, like, um, the focus going into sort of the first hotel room scene with Agent Gale. Um, Cassie is like in, she's not paying attention. She's focusing on the Christmas lights. Um, and they cut to, you know, there's the Christmas lights that are in the hotel room, but then they cut, obviously, she's thinking back to the house of cedar and pine and Christmas and the day she told Cole that she was pregnant. Um, and all of it, it's it's purpose is kind of now you realize is twofold like the first in the first time i watched it it like really put me in her headspace of how she you know what she says later like i wake up every day thinking about that time and And they set it it up without the dialogue and exposition which was brilliant Right, right. It's all images, right? I mean, she's not, she'll say some of it out loud later, but you already know that it's on her mind just from the way that they um, intersplice the Christmas that's around her with like her memories. Um, But it's also, you know, now you can't help but like she's thinking of her Red Forest moment, (laughs) you know? But now we're watching her Red Forest moment. Um, Yes. Yeah. Um, So you have... um, sort of this <laughs> agent gale still thinks they're brother and sister um <laughs> and it's kind of great because you have you know this these images of like cassie and cole sitting on this couch in the house of cedar and pine and you know like uh, this is exactly where we're supposed to be and it's all lovey-dovey and then you have this super and then it cuts to them super awkwardly trying to pretend to be brother and sister on the couch with agent gale <laughs> and it's just kind of um like there's just so many – I mean, one of the things that Cassie and Cole don't tell Gail the entire episode is that it, they think their son's the witness, right? So, like, mm. there's a lot that they're holding back with him. Um, they get- they're a bit of salespeople themselves. It's hard to recruit that way. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, and then you have sort of this first introduction of this idea of um, a gathering of the faithful Um that they are preying on people who are sad or bereft um, because of something that happened. Um, and they look at Hope Valley, New York, and then they decide to go to that town. And I love the imagery of like the winter of ash and blood. That sounds like a YA novel. <laughs> <It 
doesn't it? Um, it sounds straight out of Game of Thrones. Let's be real. <laughs> Does it? Yeah, I could see that. I mean, not truly, but it just sounds like it. You know that it could easily relate to something like the Targaryen right conquest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, if you guys don't have anything about sort of that initial conversation, other than them being like, "Gail, maybe you should sit this one out," and he's like, "No way, sister." <laughs> like I'm in it. That takes us to the scene in Hope Valley um, on the street. And you have this conversation. Do you guys have sort of any initial thoughts? There's a lot to unpack, but Cassie and Cole are basically going around and around about fate, free will, loops, what can you change, what you can't. No, I mean, um, it just it, it does kind of foreshadow this question of whether, I mean, not only obviously if they can change um, Ethan, but also just if they can save Gale or not. You know, I mean, it is it is kind of interesting to put that in, in the audience's head because I think, like, except if Terry tells us, then we don't ever really know mm-hmm. the answer. Right. Like, whether he never died because they right. already told him. Right. Right, because it's also a question of, well, did they save Ethan? Like, even just, just beyond the did they save him physically, did that what they did actually make a difference or did he save himself you know like i think there's did he save them you know there there's so much to that question right because if he was never the witness Mm -hmm. but maybe he was never the witness because of the way they interceded right like it (laughs) it's just like a a a loop and i had never really until i rewatched thought about you know, the two dying men, the two drawings of dying men in this episode are Gale and Ethan. And these two mm. mini loops of one's a great bigger loop, obviously having to do with Ethan, but then the smaller, more contained loop having to do with Gale of what what can you change and what can't you change? Um, and they're all about saving the one, which is ultimately what Ethan tells Jones, right? Like at the end of the series. Um, and you know, they've, as we said, like Cassie and Cole have flipped perspectives, right? So if at the beginning of season two, Cassie was like, you got to sacrifice Jennifer. And Cole's like, no, we save the one. We only make a change when we save someone. They've now flipped perspectives. And it's Cassie who's the one arguing, but we could save Gail. And Cole's saying, no, but if we did that, what if that reversed the red storms? Which is a legitimate point, right? Uh, like, what? Not? Yeah, no, I'm oh, sorry. Yeah. I was saying, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, Cole, it's not like Cole is just being sort of resigned to this. He does make a legitimate point. Like, yeah, we could save Gale, but then what if he doesn't save us in Berlin and then the Red Forest is brought about? Like everything that we prevented at the end of season two. Cole Uh, is being very much the Cole that Jones created. mm, Right. Well, and he's going to say at the next episode, I just want this to be over. Yep. Yeah. He's tired. I mean, can you even imagine? He's so tired. And his, like, future self already told him, like, you're about halfway there. You got so much longer to go. And he's like, oh, God, really? Can we just stop? (laughs) Right. You know, and when Cassie's like, we can change, you know, we can save him. And Cole's like, well, you're you're not talking about Gail. You're talking Mm -hmm. about Ethan. Um, I just want to give a shout out because I – I'm obsessed with Cassie's clothes in this episode and that coat, that blue coat with that little black hat. I like would really like to purchase that somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I can pull off the hat, but the coat. No, you can sure. rock that. It would be awesome. <laughs> um, I also just love um, the visuals 
with the explosion and you've got this kind of almost like porcelain makeup on Cassie and then you've got the black ash like falling on her face. Um, I just thought it was really pretty to look at. Um, then we see Shaw really, really creepy. Of course, he's the pallid man's father <laughs> standing in the middle of the street. Tiny pallid man. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it's so good though. Can we just like a moment for that, the visual of this? Yeah. Oh, how you already said how great the direction is in this episode, but I just that one shot of the smoke and the panic and the way, you know, you see people, some are running towards it, some are running away from it, some are just standing there. It's so good. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And it's so, it's so far away from them. And yet, like, only a moment later, there's such a direct effect where they're like, kind of yeah. part of it. They can't yes. deny like, oh look, that was just an explosion over there. It's like that happened. It's like, oh, people. Yeah. Cute. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then you have I mean th- and then you have Shaw who visually stands out because he's the only one not panicking. Right? Because mm-hmm. he yeah. knew yeah. and at that point, I frankly didn't know like, is this something the twelve monkeys caused? You know what I mean? Like, but, but I mean, he's calm because he already knew it was coming. Um, right. right. And so like, even visually, the way he's just standing there and everyone else is in a panic around them. Um, he just really, like, not only does it make sense that Cole would have noticed him, right? To like connect that, those dots later on, but just like the direction visually, you're like, oh, that guy knew it was coming. Alec <laughs> man got his like creepy, like just stroll around. <laughs> like composure from his dad it's just like i'm just gonna stroll through the street of death it's fine i have such different feelings about shaw than i do about the pallid man though like the, the yeah well you know, sure pallid man's the enforcer shaw's the salesman and man i he almost gets me there <laughs> he really does all right so I will save sort of that takes us to the next scene where Agent Gale has done his research and there have been multiple tragedies um, around that time, 1953 and around it um, with all the different newspapers and that people are disappearing. And Cole makes the connection that the common thread is that, you know, the sh- that Shaw is on the cover of one of those newspapers. I'm going to save for the end um, a rabbit hole about sort of the historical underpinnings for some of those events. Um, but you, ha- I, I actually like, I don't know if I can quite articulate what I was, but there's something interesting about taking the army of the 12 monkeys, taking like if you were going to talk about them even like in a legal term hand of god natural disasters right like tornadoes earthquakes floods you know things that are like forces of nature and then using them they know they're coming and then they leverage them to recruit their followers um it's just kind of an interesting like except for the mining accident none of those disasters are man-made and they're all out of human control and then the army of the 12 monkeys is like leveraging the grief um that came from them and they're not doing anything to stop it or to warn anyone right and so like it's almost like their own like they know what's coming and they're leveraging it that i think is kind of interesting and then they kill people. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, may I ask? <laughs> Sorry you're I, grieved. Bye. <laughs> yeah. I'm a little bit confused. Um, you know, the, the woman they choose out of that mass, who is she? Like, what is she? Is she I, just a follower? I, I understood that what they do is they attend. So they go to a place where there's been mass casualties. 
And yes. they go to the funerals. And people who are so grief-stricken that mm-hmm. they are receptive to Shah's message, they are then invited to the tent. Mm-hmm. So what I thought is that she's a woman who lost someone in the mine explosion. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Is that what you guys understood? But if if yeah, Shaw, is, yes, is she more yeah, than yeah, that yeah. though? She dies in the next episode, right? Does she? Doesn't she get shot? Uh, oh yeah, she does. You're right. You're right. Yeah, but uh, but people like her, I assume, are the the followers that are living at Titan, right? I mm-hmm. guess so. It's just because they're picking so the twelfth one, like. Yeah, exactly. It's the, she's the twelfth so, of what though, like you said. Yeah, exactly of what because it's not the babies, right? It's not the messengers. So the twelfth yeah. follower, right? Right. I don't know. I mean, but they're plucking they're plucking people for different, right? They plucked uh, in the season three premiere Ariana. Um, mm-hmm, they plucked mm-hmm. her from her family, like in the Middle Ages. Yeah. Um, and we see the faithful, you know, that are normally sort of these like faceless like the people that are chanting like the witnesses returned and all of that and so i don't know if this woman is going to become one of those followers at titan they obviously have a lot of people working for them at various timelines or at various points in time right like all of the people that work for olivia and monkey mansion in season one and season two so yeah i don't know like was she going to be one of the faithful at titan i don't know I don't know. I was just, it, it's just, it's so much trouble that they go through to get this one woman. Right. There's so much ceremony. Right. Yeah. And so much, even disregarding all the people they kill, if, if they consider that like not a big deal, then it's still just a lot of time. <laughs> right. And <laughs> that it's, they put into this. and it's their, it's its own, who they choose is its own loop. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Cause Ethan is seeing it because she was already chosen. Yeah, but yeah. like, so, yeah, exactly. Why, why go through so much time sort of interviewing all of these people just to bring them there just to choose one that he, you know, I don't know. I, I suppose it doesn't matter, but it's... <laughs> it's like, Ethan, couldn't you have just drawn her picture and her oh, address? Why are you so dramatic? <laughs> I wondered the same thing. I did. Yeah. I was like, um, okay, you got chosen. Who are you? I mean, mm-hmm. it would. I mean, the one, the one persuasive point to all of that is that for that woman who is the chosen one, Yeah, she sees she people chosen. appearing and disappearing, right? She sees mm. the prophet choose her. All of that mm. are very compelling tools to recruit someone into a cult to go live, yes. like in a time-traveling city. Um, so it does have – I mean, we'll get to those scenes, but all of that is all – there are theatrics to it. It's all meant to persuade. So you would feel like – can you imagine this boy comes, draws a picture of you when he's never seen your face? You have people appearing wearing these crazy light up suits. And then the man, you put your arms around this man and then you're like transported somewhere else. Like I'd believe in that cult, I think at that mm-hmm. point, you know? You know, it really reminds me of the Buffy pilot with the with the master. Oh no, the, the finale of season one with the master and the little, little boy. Mm-hmm. Like leads Buffy into the, the the crypt. Yes, it's a lot. I feel like it's a lot like that. Yeah, <laughs> I've got. I'm on season four, so I. I yeah, but you've seen it. You've yeah, seen it. I'm like. I'm Evil like, kids ha- are creepy, man. What can yes. you? Yes, I mean, there's a whole thing. The kids, kids doing evil things is a is a next level creepy, which we'll get yeah. to. Yeah. <laughs> um. So you've got you know I love it. You've got Cassie coming up with the idea that like no 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 we got to do this on the inside. Um, and so that takes us to the cemetery scene. 
um, which we talked just a little bit about. I this is one of my favorite scenes in the show. Um, yeah, it's just cinematography wise. And the direct, it is gorgeous to look at. Like the white snow, the black veil. Um, uh, like it, I just, I think it's a beautiful like scene to look at. Um, it is so important thematically um, for making a, I, I think, compelling argument for why you would want the Red Forest. Like this isn't just your typical superhero villain. I want to take over the world type of baddie, right? Like, I think there's a compelling emotional argument as to if you are grief stricken, why you would want to achieve this. Um, But also, it's just really interesting for Cassie's character arc. Um, Before we dive into that, little pallid man holding the flowers. He's kind of, he's kind of another nature versus nurture little puzzle in this episode, don't you think? Yeah, because they do say, like, if we leave him leave him alive, maybe he'll pick a different path. I just, I really like the way that they had to really overtly establish that it was him so that we wouldn't think it was actually Cassie's son. Mm. Because that would 100% be the assumption that I would make. Right, and, and, the, and the way they do it, I think, is such an interesting nature-nurture um He's a little boy at a grave who puts a bouquet of lavender and jasmine on the grave, which is a such a like simple, like beautiful gesture of like respect for someone who's grieving, right? And then they flash forward to as a man, what does he use lavender and jasmine for? <laughs> like to creepily spread on like the sights of people he murders, right? So you've got like even so they don't smell, ah, uh, right? And that and that of itself was like a plague, doc, like a plague, um, right? So I feel like even that, like I'm just like, oh god, you have this little boy, and you see the most unbelievably fucked up circumstances that he was raised in, like. Those are his parents. Um, and then you see the man he's going to become. It's almost like its own little shorthand of, of nurture versus nature, which, you know, Cassie alludes to later. If we kill Shaw, maybe Pallid Man's got a shot to not be the Pallid Man, right? So you've got Gale kind of coming to his own conclusion um, that, you know, maybe I believed you guys were brother and sister before, um, but, I, but I sure don't think that now. <laughs> And the way you guys are looking at one another, which I think, again, goes to what you guys were saying. Like, even though they're having a fundamental disagreement about their son, we as the audience, but also Gail that is drawing his own conclusion that they're romantically involved. Um, Well, they're in a very different place than they were in 44. Right. Yeah. But isn't it interesting to think that regardless of what they told Gail or not, Gail had observed all of that when he was sitting down and talking to Cole in 1961. Like, you know, Gail's a good FBI agent. I know, but he knew, you know, he he's helping Cole when Cole was betrayed by Cassie, knowing that in his past, but in Cole's future, they're going to be in a relationship <laughs> together, right? Like he he really hid that. And then you have like the the giggle stick, um, remembering how Cassie had like literally emasculated him with his cover story in the forties, <laughs> and just the humor of like we would not be in the mess we were in <laughs> if that had been shot. So up. true, right? Um, do you okay? One of if we if you guys didn't have anything else about that, you have this scene with Cassie, and 
One of the things that it reminds me of sort of the Olivia scenes when she was manipulating everyone in that earlier season three episode enemy, Cassie, you have some visual things like when Cassie is telling her fake story to Shaw, which on the first outing he does not buy, she's wearing the veil. And when Shaw's about to walk away and she starts to sell the lie with her actual emotional truth, she lifts the veil up, which I thought was kind of like interesting direction just with the costume of like, when is she wearing a mask and telling a story? And when is she actually speaking the truth and selling the lie with the truth to him? Um It's got a lot of dialogue that recalls um the season – to finale when they were at the House of Cedar and Pine for just one moment. I, we were exactly where we were supposed to be, which is what she told Cole um, on that Christmas morning. Do you guys have any, like we can break it down, but just sort of thoughts generally about Cassie talking about we're really being let into her head here and Cole is listening. I think that she... Not that she forgets, like, consciously, but I think, like, subconsciously she probably forgets that he's listening. Like, she needs to let this stuff out. Yeah. Like, she, I think it's a, such a genuine moment of connection with Shaw. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or I suppose not with Shaw because she doesn't know his side of the story mm-hmm. yet. But it is this, it, it's, it's purely for him as someone she feels you know, has no stake in, in what she's saying, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sometimes it's easier to tell a stranger than it is exactly. to have to confront the person you love. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... Also, I know it's, like, counterintuitive to say because she's acting in both senses because Amanda Shul's acting, but, like, the best acting you're ever going to pull off is to tell the truth. Right. Right. Um, and I, it's also, I mean, watching this scene now is so interesting because... We're watching her try and be sort of like a double agent, right? But what we know now that we've seen the whole thing is that she is susceptible to this argument. Like, she is someone who is grieving that moment and grieving her son and will, in season four, be grieving knowing that she's going to lose Cole as well, right? And it's all, it's all going to be like obliterated. Um, like not even have happened. And so, there's so many layers of like uh, to to peel back because even as you're watching in season three, you know that this part of the conversation when her veil is lifted up and she's telling Shaw that that is true to her, um, that she's quote unquote still stuck in that moment and every day waking up wondering what our family would have been like. But that being stuck in that moment is a profound like that is her character arc. That's what's going to take her up to that countdown moment on the balcony. Um, so there's so much to like peel back because she's selling a lie, but at the same time, that connection with Shaw and sort of his kind of opening argument about time is something that she will in fact be very susceptible to. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have a question yeah. or a thought. Yeah. And maybe I'm just too literal. So I've never kind of understood how this played in. Mm-hmm. But if we're talking about living in your perfect moment, like in my mind, like with no time, you don't really go forward from there. So I've never really understood like even Cole saying like, we can go live in that house forever and like raise our son and do this and that. Like, I, I don't really understand how that could happen when it never happened. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think the raising their son part also trips me up because it's also part of Cassie's sort of going back to the moment that she's talking about is, you know, I wonder what our family would have been like. But I think the way that I sort of understand it, it's a little bit like like a dream moment where you're living in that one moment, but part of it is also the vision of what can come from it. You know what I mean? Like she's saying very specifically, it was the two of us about to be the three of us. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of the promise of that is laid into what makes that moment so great, if you know what I mean. Like it's not a concrete, we're in this house, sitting on the sofa, frozen in amber. It's more of a the feeling of that imbued with all of the experiences they had coming in, like she feels all of that at once and she feels everything that she 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 felt could be good from that point forward. No, no, totally agree with that. What I didn't, what I don't understand is strictly like the logistics of the Red Forest, mm. like how something right. that never happened could happen. Right. But the, the, I, I think that's what I'm saying is that it's not, it's not the memory of <laughs> tomorrow. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's the, it's the thought of what it could be. Does that make sense? Like the moment you're living in a perfect moment, part of why it's so perfect is because it feels infinite. It feels like it, it's going to keep being good forever. Mm-hmm. And so it's that feeling. It's not raising their son specific, like what Cole says. It doesn't really fit in with that. But I also don't think that that is accurate to what the Red Forest is. I think it's it's the idea of what their family could be. Right. Okay. That's the only thing that took me out and confused mm. me. And you confirmed that is when Cole specifically said, like, we can stay there forever and raise our son. And I'm like, no, I don't think yeah, that's no, how that works. It's like yeah. a, a fake life. Yeah. Like, that's kind of invalidates the idea. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Because there's no past or future or no, anything. Like, right, you can't right. really go anywhere. Even if even if you're, like, an advocate for the Red Force, like, that just doesn't – that just never really computed for me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, there you know – ostensibly we never actually saw it so who Mm -hmm. knows who knows what it actually would be so when cole is on that balcony saying that to cassie i mean uh, he doesn't know any more than anybody else does right so he's speculating like even if even if we got the best of everything you would ever have wanted you know (laughs) i still don't want you to do it yeah yeah Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i mean one of the things um i i love chris like Christopher Lloyd is such an interesting choice for this role. Um, I mean, not only, you know, of course it's fun that he's like, you know, an icon from Back to the he's Future. Doc Brown. Right, right. But he, I don't know if everyone could have brought, like, he is the salesman, the missionary for a murderous cult, <laughs> right? Like, he is recruiting bereaved people to their death. Like they call that ceremony in the tent the wake. And the wake is for everybody but one who's about to be killed, right? And yet he's able, I feel like watching his face, he is moved by Cassie's grief. Like he is emotion, he is empathetic. He is emotionally connecting with her. I mean, we now know his perfect moment is with his wife before she died in their 
their house, right? Like, so there's a personal level of connection between Cassie and Shaw, but you have to assume that he is emotionally connecting with many, many, you know, all those people in the tent are ones that he emotionally connected with through grief. And this is Mm -hmm. someone, you know, when he says, I have encountered grief in all forms, crying, laughter, um, stone-faced and solemn, right? This is someone whose job is to seek out people who are grieving. And, you know, his uh, people believe time heals all wounds. I believe it creates them. It's compelling stuff. <laughs> like sometimes I'm disturbed by how compelling I find it. Um, did you guys have any thoughts about Shaw in this scene? No, just that he needs to be. Yeah compelling he needs to be genuine he need like you guys have talked about him before how he's so scary because he genuinely believes mm-hmm. there's nothing scarier than a salesman selling snake oil that like believes it's everything he's telling you that it is mm. there's nothing scarier than that mm-hmm. right i mean the, you know the other layer of like just with respect to cassie and cole in the last episode I felt like Cole was hold when they were, you know, talking um, during the heist '80s episode. Um, Cassie was the one that was trying to emotionally connect, and it wasn't like Cole was rebuffing her. He just wasn't as emotionally open. And he's sitting in the car, and he is listening to Cassie describing what she's emotionally going through. You know, waking up every day, um, and that is what sets it up for him to then reciprocate and open up when they're standing next to one another in the tent. Um, So I think it's interesting that even though the show has them going what seems to be in opposite trajectories with respect to their son, they're also like reconnecting them emotionally so that like when we get to the end of the next episode, I believe that they're a team, (laughs) right? Like against everyone else. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, in the past, they've been, they've truly been on opposite sides. And now they're on the same side. And they might have like disagreements on how to get to the, um, like to the end that they're both working toward, but they are working together. Right. Yeah. Which, you know, we have talked, I know, like a lot on this podcast about how many shows never move beyond the will they or won't they. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what I love is that like, they don't break up over their son, right? Like, you could see many other shows where a father is like, I'm about to kill our son, and then there's a breakup, right? And then you introduce... At the least. At the least, right? And you introduce a whole other will they or won't they, and right? Like, it's an obstacle for them, blah, blah, blah. But here, they are a couple that is... There's no question that they're committed to one another. It's that they're struggling with, as a couple, how are you going to deal with this thing? Um, And Well, there's not even a guarantee per se. Like, there's definitely never been a, like, a DTR. There's no guarantee right this moment that they even, like, are a couple. But they're also not not a couple. You know what I mean? Like, they just are. They're going to ride it out whatever's happening. Yeah. It's not like yeah. either one of them is going to run off and being like, I'm going to go be with this person because I'm mad at you. Like, exactly. what state are they in right now? I- I'm not really sure. Like, I don't know if I would say, like, look at this couple. But, like, there's so much on each other's side. Like, the romance portion of it, I just don't think is, like, at the forefront right now. Right. Which is such – which is the right way, you know, sure, to do absolutely. Like this. 
because also because it is it would be incredibly sort of almost trite to have them once again become like mortal enemies and castles right. on one side you know protecting Ethan and Cole is like step aside and like Voldemort ish you know yeah. like, um, or to even like, have the breakup that would just be right, so trite right. like it would be it's not about that anymore and I think that's why kind of this is sort of the ultimate test like if they can look at this dilemma do we kill our child or not <laughs> And they can have a disagreement about that, but still be like, but it's we. Right. It's not, I, am I going to stop you killing my child or not? It's what are we going to do? Mm -hmm. And how do we feel about that? And even if it's not 100% aligned with each other, how do we proceed? I, yep. I love that. I really love that. Right. Yeah. It's, it, it, I think it just add, it ends up adding so much more depth to... Th that romantic relationship, right? Yeah. That it, uh, that question was answered at the end of season two. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, do you guys have anything else about the cemetery scene? No, ma'am. Okay. No. Other than I would really, that'd be, I guess, kind of a dark cosplay. But again, I want that hat with the veil. <laughs> I want all of Cassie's hats. I don't really think, like, I don't see a lot of people walking around with hats in 2019 DC, but I would love to, like, <laughs> bring back the 1950s hats. All right. So that takes us to sort of the final hotel scene with um, Cassie, Cole, and Gail. And there's two sort of thematic pieces that I think are interesting. Um, the first is Cassie's observation, every faith promises something beyond this. Mm. And I have a sort of a rabbit hole at the end of the pod about their choice for a tent revival um, to be sort of the presentation of the Army of the Twelve Monkeys as sort of their sermon. Um, so I'll save that for the end, but I think, I think it's an interesting observation and it goes towards something that Shantretta had said when he came on the pod about the Red Forest, that even though they weren't making sort of, they had no intention of making kind of like overt religious points, but that every, you know, most religions I can think of in some way are grappling with mortality. And wondering or promising that there is something after. Um, and so even though this all sounds crazy and destroying time and a red forest and you've got this cult, the kernel of what they're promising is something that is like clearly meeting a human, trying to meet a human need because it's something that's common to most faiths. And if you guys mm. had any thoughts about that. No, I think that's a good point. Yeah, you nailed it. All right. Well, then I'm going to ask you, what do you think about um, sort of the themes of the show, but also with respect to Agent Gale, when he says, people just want to believe that they have control over their own fate? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's pretty key. Yeah. It's also that pretty universal. It is, yeah, and it's pretty It's pretty sort of on the nose in terms of, of this show's constant, we've talked about this before, but how, like, is anything they do? Does it make a difference? You know, are they playing into into their own loop or are they breaking it? Mm -hmm. You know, um, and I think the the fun, the interesting thing about the way it's phrased is people want to believe that they have control, mm -hmm. right? Because I think that's the third layer of it. It's not like do you in this instance 
do are you able to go back and change something or are you not it's also a but if you believe that you did is that not what matters mm-hmm. you live differently that way Mm-hmm. It shapes your your mm-hmm. your life and your choices or lack thereof in that regard. Right. Yeah. Right. It's also when you think about that, um, his question is is kind of meta in the larger sense. Exactly, um, even though yeah. he's specifically talking about his death, you know, he's like, "Did it make a difference?" And Cole's like, "I don't know. <laughs> we don't know if any of this is making a difference, like in the larger sense. Like, yeah, they've changed something here or there, and like, sure, we've saved some people, but like, where are we going?" You know, and it's like, I don't don't know. Right. I mean, you have, I mean, but that's also like to what Selena's saying about we are at a point in the story where they are stuck in a loop. And, Mm -hmm. and it's not until Cassie and Cole kind of resume their, um, I guess it's at the end of 45 RPM when she comes back from her solo mission to try and kill Olivia. And she kind of she picks up the we're stuck in a loop, and Cole's yeah. Cole's like I think I know how to break out of it, and he doesn't quite have the idea yet. <laughs> you know what's going to break the loop is a racing Cole, um, but they are all stuck in a loop. Although I think like if you step back and try and think about ultimately what the show is saying, the characters do ultimately exercise free will that that means everything, right? Like it saves the world. Um, Unless it doesn't. Unless it... Ah! (laughs) (laughs) Damn it! (laughs) Well, I mean, that's... I mean, I suppose that is another fundamental way that, like, if you view the ending, are you an optimist or a cynic? Can we we make choices that make a difference or not? Um, I thought I had, like, a thread of hope there, Beep, and you just, like... (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Yeah, I mean, you know, and obviously it's super interesting for Gail because the information they arm him with, what he's going to stand up and say when we see the flashback that he was wearing the bulletproof vest is he says, fate my ass. Yeah. <laughs> you know, right? Like he he was given information. He may be in a loop, but he was given information and he did something with that information and he saved himself in that moment, right? Like. Cassie and Cole made a choice that changed something, and then Gail made a choice that saved his own life. And so you- But it's kind of like with Hannah, like nothing changed. You know what I mean? For as far as they knew, he died. Just like as far as right. Jones knew, Hannah died. Like he didn't change anything that, like, he didn't interrupt causality. Right. Well, the larger causality, he, he really, uh, the causality that matters for him was changed quite significantly because he's not dead. No, no, no. no. <laughs> but, he's fine. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the thing that Cole was worried about. Right. Um, if that, that takes us to the car scene where right before they're going to get into the tent. And I, it's a really interesting character moment that Cassie tells him. Um, it's not Cole. Cole's the one who always had the bond with Gail, right? Um, and Cole was the one in season two saying, save someone. And now it's Cassie who makes that decision and blurts it out and tells Gail. And then it's kind of no going back from there. Um, I mean, maybe we've already kind of spoken to this, but I, I love that it was her. Yeah. Um, what well, is kind of on her? I mean, in that, you know, yeah, she and Ramsey were so dogmatic about going on that mission and it was, that is one of the loopiest loops they've ever been on. Like, look at this CIA thing we found. Well, the only thing reason that was written is because of you guys, you know, like, (laughs) yeah. 
So in that regard, he totally died for nothing, like from her point of view Mm -hmm. right now. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's such an important moment for Cassie too, because I think sort of in like an extension of sort of her being not really allowed a lot of external relationships, she also has mostly stories that are about herself, Mm -hmm. you know, that are about what is best for her and the people that she directly loves and, and stuff like that. And so I think it's, it's so great whenever she gets a moment of doing something that is external to herself. You know, like telling Gail, telling Gail this doesn't benefit her in any way. No, perhaps to the contrary. It's not for herself. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And yeah, and I think right now that she's developing into a Cassie that's no longer asking, should we save them? But can we save them? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 And it's setting up, I mean, you know, the next episode, she's going to go back and see her mother. She will make a change there. We will see right? Like 12-year-old Cassie went to the museum that day with her mother. Yeah. And she, whether it's in a loop or not, because that is what always happened and Ethan wasn't the witness, one of the reasons why he wasn't the witness is because Cassie refused to give up on her son, right? Like, Right, right, totally. Um, whether that is a loop in and of itself, it is still a consequence of her having faith and being hopeful um, and Cole finally gets there as well. Um, but yeah, so I think it, I just think it's really, I mean, it's, it's so interesting because Cassie was a, obviously like had a very different viewpoint in season two. And, uh, you know, we, folks have come on and talked about sort of what audience reaction was to that. And this season, they are literally like flipping the script and she's the hopeful one and she's also right. Um, yeah, you know, like it's her turn this season to be the one who's delivering that message. Um, the- yeah, and I don't, I don't think they do this in a cliche way. Mm-hmm. It makes but sense I know you based can... on her experience, right? Well, yeah, but I was gonna say I don't, I don't think they do this particular thing in a cliche way. But I know that you can speak to it in general. I, I just motherhood changes you. Yeah, absolutely, uh- and it has changed Cassie. Like it's not just those experiences so much as like. There's a human, you know what I mean? That's now involved in this that was not there before and is there now. Right. Um, yeah, I want to save uh, some thoughts I had about that for the the second conversation Cassie and Cole have with each other um, about what's real to them or what's not. Um, gotcha. In addition to, like, I just find it moving that Gail asks whether his death makes a difference. The other line that hits me is when Cole says – you know, you're not the first friend we've lost and you won't be the last. Because <laughs> he's obviously meeting Ramsey, mm-hmm. but then I immediately think of Hannah and Deacon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's also, again, it's it's sort of a, an interesting way that they make it all about them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But they do tend to do sometimes, obviously, right. because they are the ones going in and out of, of other people's lives. But it does become sort of, this is our quest and everyone we meet are already dead. Mm-hmm. That line of thinking leads him to see Gail, Gail's life and death in the context of you are my friend and I am the one who loses mm-hmm. you. Right. You know, and that's also another reason why I think what Cassie did was so refreshing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. Like you're part of my journey, not your own journey. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Although, you know, I love, there's so many little details, right? Like, now when Cassie goes into a tent to go on a mission, you see Cole is like beside himself with worry. And there's no dialogue. 
And Gail notices that. And that's when Gail is like, okay, I'm going to go shove the door in this guy's face and pick up an extra invitation for Cole. You know, like, that's not part of the plan. That's just Gail, like, reacting in the moment. Like, he's really worried about her. I'm going to get him inside, too. Right? Like, yeah. Um, and then... Well, I mean, he heard that cemetery chat. He might be worried about her. Right? Maybe Ga- in a way that we can't even comprehend. Right? Maybe Gail's, like, the biggest casserole shipper of all. Like, we just didn't know in 1961. Um, but he... Cole tells him, you know, it is interesting that, like, Cole is, like, mission, 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 but he tells Gail, like, once once Gail kind of, that, that's, like, an act of kindness, that's something that, like, a friend would do, right? Like, he knows that Cole wants to be in there, and Cole tells him, don't pick up the phone in 1961. Mm-hmm. Call me a douchebag. <laughs> Gail's like, I don't know what that is, <laughs> but I'll call you something else. Um, but, you know, and, and it, there's obviously a poignancy to that because we know that he will. Um, and at that point in the show, we think that's it. You know, like, did you, I, I don't think I had given thought to whether Gail would come back. I thought it was just kind of this poignant closure to his story. Um, yeah, I didn't necessarily uh, see that coming or even just, you know, just not even really think it through that he might be back. Which I think, if I'm remembering correctly, didn't they say they had actually filmed him saving himself and then decided to wait until season four to unveil that. I think I'm remembering that correctly. Um, okay, that takes us to the tent. Um, what do you guys, do you guys have any initial thoughts about this kind of, before we get into the whole sermon and ceremony, this side conversation between Cassie and Cole? I thought it was a big deal to hear a man say the happiest moment was to find out who's going to be a father, yeah. considering how like scummy the idea of, dads are in this day and age it's like in general not all dad you know what i mean though just like absent fathers and that sort of thing he didn't even say like it wasn't about the romance it wasn't about anything but just like that that would complete them and that he was like i'm gonna be a dad which is something he never thought he would have yeah it is like refreshing kind of the masculinity we want to see in our entertainment right like a man Mm -hmm. expressing joy at fatherhood yeah for sure um that is when we find out – is this where we find out his name is Ethan? Yep. So, yes. Cassie, yeah. I wanted to name him Ethan. Me- and Ethan, mm-hmm. of course, in Greek means eternal life or immortal. Ah, oh, that makes sense. Yeah. I was just like, where's the end? <laughs> why? Why? What's <laughs> – Right. Um, yeah, I was wondering where she got that from. I was like, yeah. oh, okay, there's a name. <laughs> That's Yeah, um <laughs> – that na- that name is interesting. Uh, of course, as the witness, as somebody, even though he's not a witness, he is a he does witness. He does travel through time and has mm. a not quite immortality, but kind of a, a a version of it. And that everybody around him, because he can time travel, dies. Right? Like he he kind of like when we see in Thief, he kind of has like a vampire-like existence, right? That, like, everybody around him is going to die, but because he can travel through time, he doesn't. Um, It's also an interesting choice, given that Cassie is our ultimate Red Forest decider um, (laughs) about eternal life. Um, They did say that they had that name, Ethan, as early as season one. um, And it was a version in that CDC scene when she's dying. Um, So it's Mm -hmm. a name that they had had at least like internally. Um, The part that I found really moving for like a lot, not only because it is um, 
based so much in their different character experiences. When Cole says, you want me to mourn him, and I can't. Mm. Yeah. Um, can't because I'm not able to emotionally. Can't because I'm not able to, like, write this minute. Can't. There's so many can'ts there. Right. Yeah. And also, you know, because what she answers is because to you, he's just an idea. And I yeah, carried yeah. him. And that was like the really interesting conversation I had with my husband afterwards is like the more universal part of this for him as a man watching was fatherhood isn't real until the baby is actually born. Right. Because it's not happening. Like, it's not happening to a, a man – in most cases, it's not happening to a man's body. Um, and this conversation, you know, I've had a lot of friends who have had miscarriages and have struggled with their partners, um, male or female, who weren't the ones carrying the baby, in that for the person that lost the – like, who's actually, like, went through the miscarriage, it's – such a traumatic experience and their partner while sharing in some of the grief it's more of an idea and harder for something to mourn um sure you know and so there's something really kind of i mean obviously the circumstances are extraordinary but there are some real kind of core things that happen to real life people who like lose a child in different ways and then can't connect because their grief is coming from different places or from different like life yeah. experiences that is really, um, I don't know, there's like a real core truth there, even if the circumstances are crazy. Yeah. Right. Which is another reason why it's so great that Cassie and Cole maintain that connection throughout. But but I think it, it is also something that I was thinking with regards to the episode where Cole made the, it's something that's always bothered me. Obviously it's supposed to bother me, um, that when Cole made, was the one who made the choice to undo their time together, uh, without consulting Cassie about it. Because one of the things he did was he undid their child yeah. without mm -hmm. her. That was his decision. And he thought he was doing it in a way so it would never have happened. So it wasn't something he was taking away from her. But I think there was, there was so much to that, to the, to the choice not to involve Cassie in that, that sort of, was very was a huge issue i think and so i think also now here there's the layer to it of him saying you know he this idea that he can't think of ethan as real also has something to do with the fact that he made the choice that ethan never existed already yep yeah, yeah. he's already killed him in a way exactly yeah. yeah which is really deep and really interesting and really i think they they don't they let it be implied more than said, which is probably the right call. And but I think they do such a good job of of presenting all of the implications of that and all the sort of moral, big, heavy things for both of of Cole and Cassie and letting them deal with mm -hmm. it. Yeah, both individually and together in in a way that's really interesting and really makes me think as well. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that is. Uh, you know, they could have. It's certainly something that's interesting to debate. Um, and I don't think they wanted them to have like an added, you know, there's so many more important things that then have happened mm. since then. Um, mm. but it is a huge violation of like Cassie's agency, what he did. 
you know, mm-hmm. like as a woman to think that your husband erased, even though you understand why he did it, of course, you understand why he didn't tell him, why, why he didn't tell her, but it's a doozy. <laughs> yeah. It really, it really it's is. To sum up. It's a doozy, man. <laughs> uh, yeah. 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 I understand why they didn't go down that rabbit hole and they yeah. had Cole voice it out loud to Jennifer that he mm-hmm. regretted that and that he didn't want to make that mistake again. He wanted to let people make their own choices. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's it just adds an and yet another layer to to what they go through in this episode, right? And and where they can't see eye to eye on Ethan, right? Yeah, and I mean, he all of that time that he thought that was erased, she was alone carrying this baby. Mm. So mm. it absolutely, their conflict absolutely makes sense in every way. Like character experiences, a man versus a woman and having a baby, like it, it all makes sense. It's, it feels really organic. Um, if you guys don't have anything else sort of about that Cassie Cole moment, I wanted to move to the the sermon part of, um, you know, so you have, we have sort of the surprise reveal of, of Mantis, um, or I'm sorry, her name's actually Vivian, right? Um, yeah, I think Vivian Rutledge. (laughs) Okay. She's she's Mantis to me. She even, she even, she even cocks her head again. Yes, she does. Right, when she's giving it. But what I think is so fascinating about this, um, and maybe I'll just – I'll give this little tidbit now just because I think it makes sense with the way they staged it. So, Selena, I know that you're in Denmark. I don't know how much you kind of know about sort of like religious history in the United States. But but these tent revivals were very much a thing in the United States, hmm. particularly in the frontier where you didn't have like permanent church structures um, and you had settlements and you often had to have um, ministers traveling kind of like on a circuit um, – Mm-hmm. And couldn't be based in one place. Um, and, you know, I, what I think is interesting is that um, I think they survived sort of in the American South for a longer period of time and sort of like a little Google search, um, whether it's Oral Roberts or Billy Graham, these kind of revivals ended up morphing into television evangelism. Um, but the idea of a sort of charismatic performance um, being sort of like the way that you deliver your message, um, persuasively, and also the idea of kind of an emphasis on free will and your own choices and your personal salvation. So I think it's a really interesting choice given that Shaw is the salesman. What the 12 monkeys are offering is a, kind of personal, eternal life where you get to choose your perfect moment to live in. And they are setting it in a tent revival, which is something that like Christianity actually did in the United States, right? So they're using kind of familiar, persuasive tools from like traditional religion, and they're using it for this cult. (laughs) And this is not like this is a sermon that's a performance. Like Mantis is performing. Shaw is performing. They're like relating to one another. They have a set speech and they're reacting to one another. And I think it's kind of fascinating the like persuasive part of this that is like evangelizing. 
And as Cole notes, it's working. Like they've got the crowd with them, you know? Um, did you guys have any sort of like reactions to sort of the showmanship of it? There's a couple key lines I want to dig into, but I just wanted like, did you guys have any reactions to it? No, not, not except for the fact that I'm, I, I think Mantis is one of the most fascinating side characters in this, in the <laughs> show. <laughs> How she turned you know, causality in her favor and she turned her own life around because if I remember correctly, she wasn't supposed to survive either, yeah, was no. she? Except Mm-mm. she must have if she was the one who did right. all this. Right. I mean, so in a way, I guess that kind of, that was fate after all. <laughs> I lost another one. <laughs> right. She didn't have <laughs> um, a purpose no. the last time she was, yeah, no. yeah. But she did, she made all of this for herself. You know, she went out and found herself a man who believed or could be taught to believe she had a son. She did all this. Like she, she, she made Olivia, like she, she, she made all of this happen. Mm-hmm. Like what an, what an entrepreneur <laughs> she was. <laughs> and you think this is her show? Like on it the, is, it really in the tent thing. Yeah. Her show. Totally. Yeah. And, and, and she was, she was quote unquote, just one of the 12. Right. You know? She was just another messenger and she is the one who turned it around. And, and it was actually, it all came from her. She is, she is the origin as well. And in, in, you know, a loopy mm-hmm. way. Yeah. No, it's and true. I love that. She wasn't meant to have any of the experiences that she's having now. Except she was right, right right because but but no you're right yeah just as a messenger though it was like your job is done just go away yeah she was at yeah. a total yeah. loss in her hospital yeah. bed with agent gail right whenever and she wasn't acting in a way like a lot of the other characters are acting in a way that well i know that i can get this power because i have been told that i will get this power right she hasn't been told anything she just did it she's a self-made woman <laughs> She really literally. Is. Well, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, literally. <laughs> um, yeah, that's such a good point about Mantis, right? Like she is, she's like a cat with nine lives. She keeps popping back right. up and having all the significance. And you know, we're seeing her at kind of a height of her religious fervor. Um, mm. We're going to in season four when it comes down to her daughter having to give up a child. That's what causes her mm. crisis of faith, right? Mm. Um, but you know, I love it's like I'm the missionary and I'm the messenger, and you're like, oh shit, <laughs> she's back. <laughs> yeah, is she related to Jennifer as well? <laughs> All those things. Yeah, yeah. So um, there's so there are lines. I mean, one of the things that I thought was interesting is, and I had never thought about it. Until until we rewatched um, the idea of, I think it's Mantis who says this, the idea of a garden and Adam and Eve, but our red forest is the new paradise, right? Like mankind is expelled from the paradise in the Adam and Eve story. And what they're offering is like a new garden, a new forest. Um, so they're even kind of like using more traditional religious stories and kind of turning them on their head in sort of like what the cult is offering. Um, and some of the lines are like no beginning and no end. Time is an uncatchable thief. Um, clocks are round. Um, what if you could ascend past, present, future to exist all at once? Um, no death, no life, a forever now. Um, and so like they really lay out the kind of theology of the army of 12, of the 12 monkeys. I think kind of like in the most complete way that we've had in the show so far, like as much for the audience as the people in the, like the audience at home watching on TV as the folks that are in the tent. 
Um, yeah. Then we get to Ethan entering the room. Um, what do you guys like? It's all a lot of um, like all religion has. Like there's there's ceremony, there is a ritual, there is like a performance aspect to it that I think is really interesting. Um, even if they didn't intend it like as commentary, these are all things that like religions use, right? Like in ceremonies for the faithful. It's a reason why people like find comfort in ritual and ceremony and they don't have Ethan there at the beginning, right? They have him coming down the aisle, right? Like very dramatically because he's the prophet. Um, do you guys have any thoughts about little Ethan, this like poor little boy who is being raised without his parents in the middle of this craziness? <laughs> Look how sad he looks. Like he's I just know. kind of like... <laughs> I guess I have to do this again. <laughs> so lost and just kind of and kind of detached almost, which I suppose he has to be. Mm-hmm. It also just I really wonder. This is just like a side thing, but I really wonder to what extent Ethan and the tiny tall man were friends. Right? You know, like were they? Did they grow up as brothers? You know, did they? I mean, I, mean, I guess I know we we know they didn't. He but whispers. How much did they know yeah. each other? Yeah, they, there was like a little bit of, of camaraderie there um, that I just wonder how that was behind the scenes. Right. I mean, there's so much about the pallid man in this. I was wondering, like, back in season one when he saw Cassie for the first time um, at her um, at her contact's house that he had murdered, does he, does he remember her as a little boy? Like, he must, right? But he's met her a yeah. bunch of times. Before right. That moment. Yeah, I don't know. But I'm it goes sure. all the way back to being a boy. Um, but yeah, you have yeah. that moment where Ethan whispers to baby pallid man, or I'm sorry, we should call him pallid boy. When Ethan whispers, <laughs> when Ethan whispers to pallid boy, and it's this something that is so familiar that kids do, and yet the circumstances are so horrifying and extraordinary. You know, like there are two little boys whispering, but he's whispering, like, please deliver this picture of a man dying to the man outside, right? Like <laughs> in the middle of this like cult revival in a tent. Um I I, I also like how many times has Ethan had to do this? Mm. Like if they have if they select yeah. all of their followers and we already saw like I mean, this is the twelfth time, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Theoretically. Yeah. Yeah, this is, it's probably is like this whole production is probably mostly for him. You know, it, it is, it is to teach him that people will die for him. It is to teach him that he has dominion over life and death and it is to, to divorce him from looking at people as, as, as important. You know, I think that that has a lot to do with how they're trying to make him, to make him the witness. Mm, that's a really good point, right? If you think about it, Ethan is raised by Olivia. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they try. They try. I loved it. I saw. I saw that Hannah Waddingham called herself um, from Magdalena the most fucked up Mary Poppins, <laughs> and I was like, "That's so perfect." She is the most oh, fucked yes. up Mary Poppins. But um, mm-hmm. one of the images or gestures that I thought was interesting that I caught just on this last time is that the apparition of Eliza points wordlessly like twice to Jennifer. Um, and they have eight b- little boy Ethan do the same thing. That like pointing gesture. 
And so True, it's interesting yeah. that they're tying Eliza and Ethan because Eliza is going to be the one that breaks him out of this kind of detached existence that you were just talking about, Selena, right? Like, even when he's not with the army, mm-hmm, he's mm-hmm. still more of an observer of other people's lives than actually, like, living one himself. Um, that takes us to this kind of amazing mythology moment where you've got Ethan, who Cassie and Cole realize in that moment that their son is primary, um, which must be just insane for them. Like, poor Cole is getting a lot mm-hmm. thrown at him. <laughs> first time he's ever seen his kid he's like great it's another jennifer like (laughs) (laughs) at least he had training right on how to (laughs) right Um, so you've got child ethan drawing at the desk and you've got jennifer drawing um in her room in 2046 and it's I think the first time we've seen two primaries, like we were saying before, they are saying the same words. They are drawing the same things. Um, and mm-hmm, so yeah, yeah. he says, um, the dying man. Um, and I think he's drawing Gail. I couldn't tell if Jennifer was also drawing Gail or she was drawing Ethan. Um, but either way, it's kind of like its own loop, right? We've said that the two dying men. So they're both drawing the dying man. Right. They say 607. Return to Titan, which we know is going to be Ethan's mission um, at the end of this season. A serpent eating its tail. Break the cycle. Climb the steps. Ring the bell. <laughs> and then TikTok, uh, 12 numbers on a clock, 12 monkeys marching, which I believe that TikTok thing is what Jennifer said when she first met Cole, right? Oh, yeah. She was saying that like yeah. way back in 102. That's how she was kind of like when she was – quote unquote, off her rocker. And we didn't really know where she was yet. She was saying all that right, stuff. So what I, it's so like the foreshadowing is so wonderful. I mean, obviously we have ridiculous clues about what's to come both for the rest of this season and in season four with climb the steps, ring the bell and all of that. Um, but this connection between Ethan and Jennifer that is happening because they're both primary and drawing at this moment and have that connection to time it's that team of Ethan and Jennifer that are going to save everyone at the end of this season. Yep. And Ethan is the, like this mentoring relationship where Ethan believes in Jennifer and the time that we, we don't get to see much of it, but the time that they spend with each other and Ethan passing the baton to Jennifer and being like, you're better than me. And you're the one that's going to figure mm-hmm. this out. Um, and it's all wonderfully foreshadowed in this kind of like moment where they're drawing all these clues, even though we have no idea like what it all means. That's definitely one of the things that would have been cool to see developed if they had yeah. a little more time. Yes. I agree. I was going to say, I wanted, I really wanted more Ethan and Jennifer. I think that came too quickly, uh, their time together. I would have, mm-hmm. yeah, I would have loved to see. Yeah. Yeah. Something more. Yeah. <laughs> well, oh, I've, I've seen that too. I've seen that fic too. So yeah, yeah you're not alone, Selena. Yeah. Um, all right. So, um, if we, if you want to just close before you have the whole horror scene, you've got, um, Ethan hands the paper to Pallid Boy. Pallid Boy and Shaw and Mantis leave the tent, hand it to Agent Gale, and he says, what's this? And they say, fate. Mm. Uh, but what, but what is so... Right, right. There's fate, choice, right? Because we understand that something was changed. But what hit me is that Agent Gale has his own loop with these 
characters, right? Like he had his 1940s and 1960s, like Mantis was there for all of those episodes. But in when Agent Gale returns, he's pointing a gun at Shaw. He will kill Shaw in front of the pallid man as kind of like a young man in that episode, right? And then you've got like, Cassie's going to shoot Mantis and the pallid man is going to shoot Cole's father. And it's just this like crazy cycle of everyone murdering. But it's this like, like the the idea that like they save Shaw. I mean, they save Gale by handing him that paper and Gale kind of makes that choice. But that means that Gale's going to be around to kill Shaw (laughs) in season four. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) Now, I saw this a little bit differently. And and I'm not I'm definitely not saying you're wrong because I don't know that I was thinking about Ethan's motivation yeah. so much. Um, I actually thought it was interesting that they handed him that Ethan drew that and then handed him the paper because in my mind, it also threw him off enough and slowed him down enough that he couldn't save everybody. What does that mean? Who? Ethan? Gale. Oh. I don't know how much he oh. stopped and slowed. And like, if he had gotten to the tent faster and the gas or whatever and cut it open, like I felt like, like it, knew- stalled him like he knew he was outside i mean mm. yeah, it's it's curious mm. it's curious why I, maybe ethan doesn't even know you know what i mean like just yeah, because yeah. You know, we know from jennifer just because primary see visions it doesn't know they know what it, they jennifer doesn't know what hers mean so ethan probably doesn't either mm-hmm. so maybe it was fate maybe time told him it's fate and then you know ethan told that to pallet boy and pallet boy told that to gail yeah. and here we are it's but I just felt like it was strange that it slowed him down because if he had gotten there faster, I felt like he could have saved people if they weren't already like falling and dying with the um, if the gas had not dispersed right. so much. Something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. That takes us to the horror of the of releasing the gas in the tent scene. Yeah, yeah. evil kids are creepy. <laughs> well, something I was just going to say that something really takes me out of this and it's it's the thing of they're in a tent. Like, surely just cut the tent. Yeah. Like, I'm sorry. It, it's just like <laughs> every time I watch this, I, I, it's terrible. And I'm, I, can't <laughs> it, I promise. But it's just like on principle for crying out loud. They, they also shoot a gun inside the tent, which is weird. But if they did that, then they could shoot. Right. I mean, I guess the they tent. show Gail um, trying to cut the tent. And even though he's on the outside, he's so overwhelmed by the gas, he can't get into it yeah yeah because he got delayed (laughs) yes yeah i mean it is there's so many layers of horror to it like the idea of yeah and like nobody was expecting it nobody was thinking clearly no they just yeah yeah, you freak out like it's getting to you almost immediately but even beyond that you're like i came in that door let's go out that door and then like like, whoa everything that involves people trapped in somewhere and unable to get out like Oh, uh, it's, yeah, it's it's horrible. It's horrible. Like it's, yeah, I always think of terrible. that movie. What was that movie that was like Braveheart, but it took place in the United States? The Patriot. <laughs> it was like yeah. right, and everyone's burned <laughs> in the barn, right? Like it's oh. the only thing I think I remember from that movie. But it is like a fucking nightmare. That. And so you have this horror of being trapped. And knowing you're going to die and you can't get out, right? And these are all people who are um, have just underwent like a tragedy. Like it's, it's horrific, right? It's delivered by a little boy. It is horrific for him. You have the whole imagery of him putting on that mask. We've actually seen that like 
uh, World War era gas mask. They had a big poster of it um, back in the 1940s mm-hmm. episode, actually, when they went on in their way to meet Agent Gale um, at that function at Columbia. So you have this, you can understand why Cole walks away from this. It's what his son does. It's the imagery of his son putting on that mask and then doing something that kills people, like, knowingly, right? Like, Ethan knows what's going to happen. As we've said, he's done it probably 11 times before. Um, So there's just so many layers of why this whole thing unfolds, and it's just awful. Like, I'm just, like, clutching my pillow because it's, like, horrible to watch. Um, That... If you guys don't have anything else about that, they obviously splinter, get their hands on a splinter suit, which we know is going to be that second splinter suit's going to be key um, for the rest of the season. Um, they see where he is. So it's setting up the next episode. Um, they come back to 2046 and Cole tells them um, we've got our second, um, you know, Merry Christmas handing Jones a splinter suit. <laughs> and then you have that final confrontation between Cassie and Cole in the hallway. Do you guys have any thoughts about that? I mean, I think it just, it it brings us back to their dilemma in a very succinct and very specific way. And I think it's just a good setup for the, for the next one. Right. I mean, it's interesting because Cassie isn't saying, she's arguing that's nurture, not nature, which she's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, she's correct. And we're going to see a lot more about the way Ethan has been raised in the next episode. Um. But she's not saying it's wrong. She's saying, I can't, which is really, you know. Sure. Um, and Cole's response that he can. Oh, that's uh, cute. It, it, Honey, well, no, he won't be can't. able to, but it's tied <laughs> back to what he believes about himself. Sure. You know, mm, yeah. so that moment yeah. when he, in the next episode, when he s- looks his son in the eyes and can't do it, you know, that's as much about connecting with his son as a human being as it is about Cole's character arc of I'm not going to do this thing, Mm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it's also a nice way to sort of to, because we have to get a little bit of Ramsey in here, um, of, of, of putting the whole Ramsey debate, like looking at that with different eyes, because a lot of people's problem with Ramsey's story was that, well, he didn't even know the kid. He just Mm -hmm. like met him as of a five-year-old. And suddenly he was like his whole entire existence. And, you know, not to jump ahead, but when Cole does get that moment of connecting with his eight, ten-year-old, ho- however mm-hmm. old he is, son, looking into his eyes, that did it. That mm-hmm. made him real. Yep. That's all it took. And that was the same for Ramsey. Yeah, it was one moment. Yeah, the <laughs> only difference is that Ethan has been real to us for a long time. Exactly. Exactly, yes. Whereas it's Sam was not. Perspective. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 It's, and, you know, it's another great... Um, Whatever moral dilemmas the show puts one character through, they're gonna, it's gonna come around for that. <laughs> Whoever's, whatever character's criticizing, whether it's, was Cassie criticizing Ramsey in season two or Cole, um, with Ramsey, now they're stuck in Ramsey's position, right? And they're gonna make yep. exactly the same choice Ramsey did. Yeah. Do you guys have any, what? If, yeah. Nothing. I was just, being with <laughs> you can have your like you let it out selena it's vindication right <laughs> everyone's favorite characters are going to do exactly what they were complaining about what ramsey was doing yep. um if you guys do you guys have anything else about the episode before i just briefly go through sort of the historical rabbit holes all right no ma'am no all right 
It was good. I mean, I always liked it, but <laughs> it's a solid, solid episode. episode that has so much more to it um, on rewatch for sure. Yes. Um, so really quickly, historical rabbit holes. Um, when Agent Gale says the FBI keeps a list of enemies, um, subversive groups in the 1950s, boy, did they ever. Um, J. Edgar Hoover, they definitely had a list, um, and not all of those groups were subversive. Some of them were like civil rights groups, and it was super sketchy. Um, so they're kind of drawing on real FBI history there. Um, I don't know if they met Hope Valley, but Hope, New York, is a real small town in western New York in the Adirondack Mountains. Um, there is a lot of mining in New York. And then the newspapers with the natural disasters. Um, there were, if you Google like mining disasters, 1950s, there are a lot of them. And a lot of them had to do with sort of like gas being released um, with the mining and then there would be an explosion. Um, one of the newspapers talks about a flood in St. Louis. There was a great flood in Kansas and Missouri in 1951 that killed a lot of people. Um, the uh, tornado, I believe they said in, was it, I can't remember if it was Amarillo or Waco. There was a whole string of tornadoes um, in 1953 Texas that killed like 144 people. Um, and there were two earthquakes in California in 1952, but they weren't in Sacramento. They were sort of in Southern California. So don't know if they actually kind of Googled natural disasters in the 1950s <laughs> and then put those on all of the... Uh, but you I sure, sure did. did. <laughs> <laughs> I sure did. Um, and then we already touched on sort of the tent revivals, but that's that's a real thing that stretches all the way back from like 1800s U.S. religious history through like 1950s and 60s. Was still going strong in the American South, so. The Army of the Twelve Monkeys used a version of proselytizing that would have been familiar um, to many Americans. So they chose their persuasive tools well. Do you guys have anything else? I don't think so. No. Nope. All right. All right. Selena, thank you so much. Thank you for having me back. So fun to have you on. We're going to have to have you on for season four. So you're going to have to think about what episode you love. Yes. If there's any free, yeah. I'll take any episode. I don't care. All right. <laughs> I'll take them all. Yes. <laughs> all right. So we are going to be joined by Christopher Monfett for the next episode, 307 um, Nurture. Oh, I guess pretty okay. Yeah. <laughs> Christopher Monfett wrote the episode. So... Um, we're excited to bring that to you next time. That's so awesome. Oh, mm-hmm. I hope everyone listening appreciates it. Obviously, they do. That's why they listen. But having all of that inside is just so great. And all of the writers inside and everything. It's such a joy. It really is. Um, it's it's really – they're just really, really – They're very, very good to us. Mm. Good to everyone. I know. It's a gift. Mm-hmm. All right. If you guys have anything else, then we'll see you soon. <laughs>